my name is Alan Canal, and I am a collaborative composer. Join me in the search for a career in classical music. This is the Making Noise Podcast. I can hear you beautifully. Can you hear me? Yeah, you're good. Oh, it's fantastic. Dude. I have a microphone here out of view, so hopefully... My levels look good on my end, so hopefully you're good. Oh yeah, I can I can hear you clearly. It's weird over here, man. I'm like in in my office here. Um, the walls are completely bare, so yeah. so the sound. Whenever I go back to the recordings of of these, uh, the sound is just reverberating like crazy from from my voice. Yeah, totally. So I try to I can try to keep my mic close to me, so it's not too uh, not too much. But you got that carpet behind you it looks like oh yeah it's, it's a um this is a closet so this is a uh what you call it oh a curtain a curtain yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh dude i can see the uh the, the mallard lamp behind you yeah dude yeah <laughs> that's the lamp oh my god yeah i have like a fake halogen light it's like an led light but it's like painted orange or whatever so it's like this nice warm light uh-huh yeah that's awesome that's so crazy my my grandma would be psyched (laughs) oh it's right there (laughs) i'm gonna have to i'm gonna have to point my mom to this uh to this portion of the episode she'd be uh she'd like that a lot too yeah are you recording right now are we going yeah yeah i start recording from the beginning just uh you know just to kind of get it all started but so that in case there's anything that you know if we start going right away it's like i want to be ready but yeah um, totally but yeah, yeah. Yeah, man. Do you have a certain time limit at all or you're just kind of free balling it? Nothing. I'm, yeah, it's fine. Um, I don't have anything else. I just ended the semester. Um, my last like responsibility was on Friday. Mm-hmm. I'm just kind of hanging now, I'm trying to decompress as much as I can, um, which actually means doing projects that i actually want to do now <laughs> um more than anything else but yeah yeah that's it's usually how it is man by the end of the semester it's like you you could actually think about and focus on the things you really want to do yeah there's a lot of stuff that i kind of had to put on the back burner for a little bit um teaching this semester was a lot and being like a student right now is a lot so it's just like man when am I supposed to make art happen? <laughs> right. Um, but it's fine. It's cool. Just doing it. You know, how, how has that been um, during this time with like COVID and shit versus prior to that when it was normal? Uh, it just feels so different. I don't know how my time has really changed. Like I can't objectively tell you like I'm busier or not, mm. but it, it feels a lot more um, in a lot of weird ways. Like I feel like I might have had a lot of pointless meetings in the past, but like really long zoom meetings are just so soul crushing that like, no matter how brief they are, it's just like you feel it harder most of the time. So, I mean, some things are awesome in really beneficial and fun but it's just like it's a totally different game yeah um there's that zoom fatigue is like totally real um (laughs) there's like tricks that i do to like kind of get past
past it. Like I'm looking towards my camera right now, but I'm not actually looking at anything. I have my screen completely blank because I found that like staring at somebody that's not actually like giving me like real feedback in like a normal kind of way doesn't help. So by not looking, it's kind of like I'm on the phone, um, which I find a lot easier than staring at somebody who's not really staring back at me. So just like finding kind of tricks to get through it. But then there's also stuff that's like particular to my situation. Like um, what I was teaching this year was like new stuff for the university that's like never been here. And then I had like a three hour seminar at the end of like an eight hour day that just like was soul crushing by the end of it. I just wanted to like take a nap. Um, so yeah, there's a lot of stuff that just like piles on that now that the semester's over, I'm just like, <sighs> like I was bored for the first time in a long time the other day. And I was like, this is awesome. I really <laughs> love this. <laughs> uh, so, yeah. And then like reading the stuff that I want to read and like not feeling guilty about it and like listening to the music that I want to listen to and not feeling as guilty about it. Cause I'm also doing my, um, phd stuff like my quals and everything right now this is my year to do all my exams and stuff so at the beginning of october i think i did a i think it was when it was we had like our literature exam Mm -hmm. which is like a needle drop exam or whatever but it had like 200 pieces on the list so just like familiarizing yourself with like a ton of music from forever most of which is stuff that i would never really listen to on my own time and i don't really care about like to be honest so it was kind of like oh I gotta listen to this Brahms symphony for the hundredth time just so I remember it. But right, um, which was like fine and rewarding and cool. But like when you then are like, oh, I want to listen to something else. You're like, but should I? Because I feel like I should study instead, which is kind of weird. So it's nice not to have any of that kind of stuff right now either. Um, yeah, it's been crazy. Well, I, I appreciate you uh, uh, wanting to jump on this 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 call with me, though. Yeah, um, totally. Um, just like stuff like this is cool. Like, <laughs> uh, I'm down for this, you know. Uh, and you know, even though it's the end of the semester anyway, but even if it wasn't, I would still do it because this is like the cool stuff that I do want to do. Right, that's cool. Yeah, we'll just know by the end of this we're gonna do a 200 piece needle drop test. So, I. Uh... I memorized the list, like brute force memorized the list. Um, Muscled your way through it? Well, I made, I I made, I still have them. (laughs) I made my note cards (laughs) and I just, by like not even listening to the music, um, I just dropped so much stuff, sorry. You're good. Not even by listening to the music, just memorizing what was on the list made Mm -hmm. the music part a lot easier because it was like a Rolodex in my brain, like, this is a orchestra piece that kind of sounds romantic. What pieces are on the list that like fill that? And so it's like, well, there's these like five pieces or whatever. And then I can go through those five mentally rather than thinking about like the whole, you know, gamut of Western classical music. It, like just having like knowing what the options were made that kind of process a lot easier. So, so did you sort of like chunk it in a way where you were like, like 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 uh these these are representative of romantic works so then like you have this one chunk of romantic music and then if you heard something that was remotely like romantic in some fashion then you would like um access that specific uh category 
kind of um i mean we've been i've been doing this a while like um this is my third year of my phd so i've been in school for this for what eight years or something give or take a couple eight or nine years and this is all i've really been doing for that long and then i was like fortunate since i was nine to be playing bass and like orchestras and stuff um so I kind of like knew a lot of it and like am familiar enough with styles and just like broad idioms of stuff that I didn't really need to think about it like that. Cause like, you know, it wasn't even a thought. It was kind of like a reflex that if you hear, if I heard something like I, I wasn't going to confuse Mahler with like, like Bach or Beethoven or something, you know what I mean? Like it's totally. just stylistically, it's not, you're familiar enough with stuff that you're just like, no, that's cool. Like, I don't need to even think about it like that. So it was more of just knowing the rep rather than the particulars dots on a page. Mm. I didn't get a hundred percent either, by the way. So this isn't like a perfect thing, but <clears throat> it, uh, it helped me quite a bit. Well, I, I asked, cause, um, have you ever heard of the book peak by Eric Anderson? Uh, uh-uh. it's this, um, this guy who has been studying, memorization techniques for a long time i don't remember the magic castle or whatever kind of stuff comes from what's that like you you memorize rooms or something like you imagine a building and the rooms inside of it and you like walk through it oh oh um i I don't remember what it's actually called but yeah i I know what you're talking about like like people who are professional professionals at memorizing things use like like what you're describing they 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 put things into a room I remember a group of people's names they'll like associate something on their face with like a room or something or like yeah yeah um no he, he this guy didn't do that it was like in the 80s or something he he took a bunch of college students and and uh at the time it was like wide knowledge that uh people can only remember seven digits which is why phone numbers were supposedly seven digits and yes. what's that in the u.s they are yeah well yeah yeah and uh and so he he worked with this one student for a while who was an athlete and um, that was important for the study because athletes have a tendon, like, you know, they're trained in a way that they repetitively do something to, um, to ex- to the level of expertise. Mm-hmm. And, and so in working with this guy, he was able to get him to the point where he can recite like 20 something digits in one sitting. And then it got all the way to the point where people were able to recite like 80 digits and, um, and the the whole point of the book actually is to point out the idea that uh, um, perfect practice with or no deliberate practice he calls it where you where you focus on something specific as a way to um, effectively learn what you're trying to do and having mentorship from uh, uh, an expert in the field is like the ideal situation in order for someone to become an, a professional at something. Mm-hmm. And part of it is he's, he also dispels the whole idea of like the whole 10,000 10, hour rule. Yeah. Um, so that's why I asked about like how you sort of categorize what you remembered with your, the 200 pieces. Cause it made me think of that book. Yeah. I don't know. Um, I can't, I can't help but wonder how much of it is just like past knowledge. Like Tchaikovsky's fifth symphony was on there. Oh, and I played it. that piece a couple times, but like, I know that piece so well. Because I was, I, I loved it 
so like i really loved it when i was younger so like i just know that piece by row i could probably sing through most of it so there's stuff like that like i didn't even i don't think i even listened to that piece this year because like i just said <laughs> i was like no i'm cool or like music for 18 musicians like right sign on the beach was on there like that kind of stuff like stuff i like you could know pretty well that you wouldn't even bother um but then there's like i i actually i don't really know Brahms music like at all um and uh it's just never really like appealed to me that much i don't i don't really have a good reason um i mean what i'm about to say is kind of sacrilege but like my way of remembering a brahms piece when it came up was uh it's like beethoven but boring and like (laughs) i i don't know why that i don't even think i don't even really believe that but like keeping that in my head anytime a brahms piece came up when i was practicing and stuff i was just like oh there it is right right it's, it's it's definitely interesting like how how each of us uh connects or relates to certain music where i mean i know i know dai fujikura like like um like vehemently hates bach mm. i don't i don't understand that at all like i love bach you know um and that's that's totally fine like you know obviously anyone could like and dislike whoever they want but uh, yeah. it's yeah like you said it's like um borderline sacrilege in certain ways but yeah it, it totally depends on who the person is you're talking to yeah and i don't i don't I don't say stuff like that to be like contrarian or anything like that. It's just like, it's just what gets me going and what doesn't like, I don't really like, I don't believe in guilty pleasures. Like you like what you like and it's cool. And if you could like really talk about and articulate why you like something, then it it's cool. Like it's fine with me because I think that's an interesting conversation. Like if somebody's like, I really like, schlocky terrible b movies but then they can like tell me why and what it is about them that they love i'm like hell yeah like that's awesome like if that's your thing and like that's your thing it's cool but i I guess it's kind of the same both ways like if you just really don't like something and you can articulate to me why you don't um that's fine with me i don't i just don't have a good answer with brahms because i just don't know enough (laughs) right right (laughs) yeah there's also the whole like history and like romanticized sort of like stories about like that period of music too that I think is kind of weird. Uh-huh. Um, I don't know. I'm trying to broaden my horizons as much as possible. So listening to like Germanic orchestra music from the 19th century, as good as it is, just, I mean, I've been doing that a while. I've been playing in orchestras for a long time. So it's just like, I don't, it's just not appealing to me right now. Um, I don't really, yeah. Well, I, I I totally know what you're saying, man. Because like when I was in high school and I was playing a lot of um like Children of Bodom, and uh, uh, what else was I playing? Uh, a little bit of Winter Sun, but that music's way too hard for me to play. Yeah. Um, but like a lot of that music is like five one five one chord progressions, you know. So then by the yeah. time I was in college and learning even more about classical music, I was so worn out with the dominant tonic relationship by then that a lot of the music didn't interest me as much, which I think is part of the reason why I started getting more into like atonal, you know, like completely removing the idea of uh, resolution and whatnot. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. I think what you're interested in and how it changes is interesting. Like you and I talked about like a lot that we both really like punk music and like, especially like old school punk music. And like now I just like, it's more nostalgia than actual like interest in the music for me at this point. Um, 
I still like love it, and I like if if it comes on, like it's awesome, and I still like have all my books and like know the history really well, and I have all my records, like whatever. But as far as what I listen to in my own time, it's just not there anymore. Uh, not that there's anything wrong with that or whatever. It's just how you kind of like transform your interests over time, like especially a lot of the music that I'm interested in now deals and like longer forms and like longer structures and stuff like that so listening to like a pop tune that's only like three minutes long i'm like oh that's it like and that's not a quality judgment it's just not what i'm used to hearing anymore um so when i hear like metal albums or something that have like these 10 minute long songs that that kind of gets me going a lot more than like brevity Mm -hmm. um yeah i don't know I've always kind of just been interested in like, I hate using the word vibe, but like kind of the vibe of music, like the general aura kind of impression that music gives, which is what I like about like whole records of music rather than like individual songs. Like I listened to, um, well, I I listened to Tycho a lot. He's like an electronic artist. Um, but how he constructs his music as like whole records rather than like individual songs, I think makes the whole thing a little bit more rewarding, but even like, I don't know. I think about Rancid's indestructible as like a whole thing. Um, because I listened to it so much when I was younger that it's hard to like separate it. Like when I hear like fall back down, I expect to hear red hot moon right after it. You know mm. what I mean? And if that continuity is not there, it kind of screws with my head a little bit, <laughs> <laughs> um, which isn't like a note to note kind of thing. It's just like this whole like impression that I have of it that like, I can't really get rid of. Um, so sometimes when I listen to those records or like listen to music from when I'm younger, I have to listen to the whole thing. So mm. it does become like a whole hour or something, uh, which is fun. I, I don't mind doing that but it's I don't know if that music was made like to be like that probably not but whatever punk music or just oh just miscellaneous miscellaneous short form pop in quotations music right Um, well I I definitely uh with your music especially like I I uh what you said about feeling the vibe of the music I mean, that's definitely there in that, uh, like listening to that piece that you put out recently, um, the law, the like three hour one, was it, uh, messy? Yeah. 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 And then, uh, that orchestra piece you wrote for BG, like, Mm -hmm. was it this past year? Uh, the one that they did at the new music festival. Uh, well that one too, actually, but (laughs) I was thinking of the one you did with Alex. Oh, the, uh, grid piece. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, you could definitely it's sense that. Snow 1964. Oh, I'm curious about that, but I, I have I have a weird I have a weird question before uh, before uh, we get into that. But um, have you have you f- found any pop music that that actually does what it is that you're interested in with like this long form sort of uh, experience? Like you said, like an album or something. Or um... yeah, there's stuff like like I mentioned Tycho. Um, his not first three, but his like second, third, and fourth records. Um, he or their trilogy that are like related to each other. Um, and I think he wrote like on his blog or something a little bit more of like the 
you know, music theory, note to note relationships between the records, like a little bit, mm-hmm. or just like in general, like this song is like paired with this one, that kind of thing. As a whole, I think they work really well, though. Like they flow super well. But then there's stuff like Flying Lotus's Cosmogramma is like a thing. Like that's one of my favorite. That that was my number one record of the 2010s when I did like a end of the decade personal review. Um, that was my number one record because it's just it's just this thing. It's this beautiful whole piece of art. Um, or like To Pimp a Butterfly, Kendrick Lamar. That's I, I definitely think that's a long form piece. There's extractable bits like um, like All Right and Black or the Berry are like great little things to extract from there. But as a whole record, it's got this kind of like through line narrative and it like really works in that kind of structure too. So yeah, there's stuff like that. Um, I, th- I think honestly, I think it's a little few and far between in in general, but it exists. Yeah, mm-hmm. totally. Yeah, I, I often think of if, if we're talking about long form within pop music, it makes me think of like rock operas or something, or like um, a, 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 um, what do you call it, like a themed album or something like that. Yeah, like a. Uh concept album or concept like american idiot is like kind of the go-to like punk rock opera right yeah um, yeah for better or worse uh that 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 basically is what that is uh and i think it plays like i haven't listened to that record in a long time um (laughs) but i think i think it works you know yeah no totally totally um it's it's funny with i i recall you put on the Flying Lotus record a couple times, or maybe at least one time at your apartment in PG. I'm sure I did. I'm yeah. Sure if you've heard it, if you've been to my apartment and we've been having drinks, you've heard it. Oh, totally. Yeah, I know. I remember jamming out to it one time. Like I, we were sitting at that little table right there in your kitchen um, mm-hmm. or whatever. Uh, I don't know how you could, I guess it's the dining room, but because um, there was one song off that album that I know. I don't know the name of it, but I just know the song, you know? Yeah. Um, and that song ended up coming on. Uh, oh God, I wish I could remember the name of it, but yeah, that that from what I remember, that is a pretty cool album. Yeah, it's sick. I recommend that to anybody. Um, it's like really, really interesting. It's production porn, man. Like it is <laughs> such a clean and good sounding record, but it's like so artistically interesting. Um, that's like a high water mark in electronic music for me, for sure. When did that? When did that come out? 2010 or 11? 2010 or 11. So it, it like barely. I, I think it was 2010 because I think it barely made the cut for my albums of the decade. I considered it from like 2010 to 2019. Um, do you do you also rate like? Uh, do you do it in a way where you're like just like your top 10, or do you go all the way down to like this was the worst album of the decade too? No, I don't. No. <laughs> <laughs> um, I okay. I don't even think I could do worst records I've ever heard or like worst music I've heard. Cause like, if I really don't like something, I'm just, that's it. Like it ends right there. Usually like if something really pisses me off and like, I have to figure out what's wrong with it. I think that it actually makes it better than things. I'm just completely indifferent towards. Like if I just, if it like, it's just like nothing that's almost worse than me being like, really angry because <laughs> mm-hmm. if at least if i'm mad like i'm learning something about myself i'm like engaging with the material i'm like thinking critically about like my opinions and why i have them about music 
and if something just then it's like who cares if if nothing happens there is no engagement you know mm-hmm. um no i just like sat my uh me and my buddy zach i think you met zach one time he's he got the of, beard and the long hair yeah yeah him and I do like well, we haven't done it in a long time, but we used to we did for like two or three years a uh, weekly record exchange, whereas like we'd just like send each other something to listen to. So when we finished, when we were getting to the end of 2019, we were like we should exchange a playlist, um, and so that's kind of where that came from, uh, where I actually like sat down and thought about it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I didn't do any classical music in it because yeah, he's not really into that stuff, um, but probably should have that would have been fun uh but the only reason i did it is because i had like a thing going on you know yeah um spin for butterfly i think was my number two so i I mentioned both of those records already so yeah wait which was your number one was it the flying lotus cosmogramma yeah Yeah. and then to bimpa butterfly by kendrick lamar was my number two gotcha gotcha i haven't heard that album but uh it's art uh you should definitely listen to it i really like hip-hop um Actually, Flying Lotus was one of the producers on To Pimp a Butterfly, so that's kind of probably another reason why I'm really into it. Oh, that's interesting. <laughs> yeah. But it's so damn good. It like, came out in, like, 2014 or 15, and, like, it punches even, like, like thematically, politically, like, what's going on, what's being talked about. It, like, it plays. Like, it was so relevant then. It hits so hard right now, um, which I think is kind of interesting about a lot of music that i really liked in high school like i was listening to some anti-flag that i was really into when i was like 13 and i was like man we had no idea what was coming down the pipes when we were pissed off about george bush um <laughs> was that the terror state yeah like terror state uh new kind of army was earlier um bright lights of america i think was like their last george bush era record but it was just like man what the hell (laughs) (laughs) um yeah yeah. but yeah i thought that was i think that's kind of weird listening back to that kind of stuff yeah it's interesting even going back to like the 60s when a lot of political folk music was being written too you know yeah um but it's also it's funnier though to talk about things like anti-flag because that's something that you and i have definitely spent a lot of time with in our in our youth (laughs) yeah it's funny there's a uh I haven't listened to like Agnostic Front in a really long time. Oh yeah, but I, I I really remember the opening track on one of their records. I don't remember which one. Like the chorus is like "fuck you, Giuliani," mm-hmm. and I'm like, oh man, I need this in 2020. Right now. <laughs> like, <laughs> it's happening right now. <laughs> yeah, but I think that was like 2001 or something when they put that out. So whenever he was mayor of New York City, right? Yeah, yeah, I think that was the early 2000s. Yeah, so that vibes. <laughs> That's funny. I, yeah, but it's interesting with like politics because when Trump got elected, there's like a lot of people posting on like Facebook and Twitter and stuff. And I, I don't really know how like seriously it was people were thinking about it, but like people saying, well, there's going to be a lot of good like punk music made now that Trump's elected. And it's like, well, it's not really where the zeitgeist is anymore. Mm-hmm. Oh, there's Ollie. There he is. There he is. Ollie man <laughs> making Yoda. the cameo appearance and he's leaving that's it that's that <laughs> that's that's as much as he needs <laughs> yeah. but uh but yeah like people talking about there's gonna be a lot of cool new political punk music and that kind of thing where it's like well 
punk music's not really in the zeitgeist anymore as far as like that kind of conversational cultural space as much as like hip-hop is Mm -hmm. um there's a lot of good hip-hop being made right now so it's just interesting how that time has kind of changed but like punk rock never went anywhere like there's totally a fourth wave of ska going on right now um it's just what is like big like Mm -hmm. i'll be damned if ska ever is as big as it was in the 90s but right yeah it never went away yeah there was a huge huge uh wave there with uh, i mean even um no doubt was ska yeah, in the beginning part of that you know third wave ska like yeah. rancid and all that stuff like that all that kind of stuff ended <laughs> in the early 2000s yeah um, well i mean it never ended but like stopped being like up there i guess probably around 2004 which is when american idiot came out so maybe that's a transition point in might be a marker yeah i don't know somebody's written a book about it that i haven't read so i have a i have a few books like two or three that are like pretty thick uh i've glanced at i've never actually read like it's like one is like i i don't know punk through the decades and stuff all the way to you know the 60s and uh and whatnot and then there's another one that's like it's it's like uh, a col- uh, a collection of flyers and stuff and like that's cool yeah yeah um i uh i got so into that stuff especially when i was in high school because like when i was in high school i was like in the punk scene like whatever small one there was in my hometown uh but stuff like reading stuff like american hardcore or like please kill me like those kind of books i was just like this is my shit like <laughs> uh, i still have all those books too I'm i'm still really into that kind of stuff but yeah i i wonder how that stuff will be talked about in like our contemporary era um lindsay ellis is a youtuber does some really good like video essays she had a good one about like protest music of the 2000s or something that talked a little bit about that i i only watched it one time i need to revisit it but um there's good there's going to be some pretty interesting perspectives on that which is which is cool growing up like i mean i don't feel like an adult so i always say stuff like when i'm a big kid i'm really when i'm a big kid i'm really excited to read the books about the music that we were into and like the pop music and like what it actually meant for culture when we were like teenagers and stuff um i was like a scene kid there for a little bit and like was friends with all like the pop emo late aughts scene so that that was pretty fun there's some pretty bad photos of bad haircuts and purple pants and that kind of thing so i look forward to revisiting that in 50 years <laughs> um, but that's the same as it is like it's been like that's the cycle you know um but it's interesting that we can look at like protest music of the 60s with a real critical eye from the retrospective uh which one day we will be able to do with this stuff. It's sort of interesting to think about too, because we're more or less the first gen. Well, maybe Gen Z, I guess, but like we're the first generation that our childhood was almost documented in social media in a way, you know? And like, we have a lot more evidence of uh, like photographs and recordings and whatnot. And I wonder what that's going to be like, like, I mean, I don't know how it'll affect I don't know. I have a book that I haven't read yet called uh, what's it called? On on photography and social media. It's called The Social Photograph. I I bet it talks a little bit about that and that's recently published but I can't can't speak for it yet. But there's also like 
it's it's you are gener well you're a millennial right yeah. i am like yeah. we're millennials so it's like our childhood was still in like the analog world you know and then our adolescence became like social media in like digital space or like zoomers generation z i like calling them zoomers mm-hmm. are like digital natives i think is the term where it's like it's like technology the internet etc etc is ubiquitous it's like it's a given it's like part of that culture like i didn't have internet in my house for a long time when i was a kid like but now that's like oh it's exceedingly rare i mean there's there's certainly people that don't have access to internet that's like a real thing and that's like a real situation people are in but i think it's safe to say that in general that's kind of the situation going on and you know, who knows what it's going to look like. Cause it, it's weird with us. Cause with the transition into the digital age, there were people trying to figure stuff out. So like film photography, like I think a 35 millimeter negative has like six K of resolution potential. Mm. But then in like the early two thousands, everybody started buying those like shitty low megapixel, like cheap digital cameras. So like all the pictures from them are just, garbage yeah (laughs) and now there's like real like my phone has a better camera than like anything that was made commercially in that same time so it's like high quality photos are like everywhere now so i don't i think that's like an interesting commercial part of that art form um which i guess is kind of similar with music because now there's stuff like well, I mean, first there was MySpace, but now there's stuff like Bandcamp where anybody can upload whatever you want. And mm. there's spaces like Reddit where everybody can share whatever they want. So there's just like so much stuff, uh, which I think is really cool because there's little communities for everything. Like if you're super into drone music, there's a ton of people that are into drone music. You just got to find them on the internet or like, you know, like a lot of the classical music that i'm interested in like has really strong internet communities there's like people that are doing it in real life and stuff too but it's like great being able to connect online like uh pianist dante boone just played some of my piano music in amsterdam on friday but like i was there on facebook watching it Mm -hmm. um so that's like one of the kind of gifts about it i think uh that's that's definitely something that i i've i've found really interesting is how how much more access i mean like obviously within the last 15 years since the iphone uh, was invented and stuff um <clears throat> access has been uh growing i guess you can say i don't even know what you say to that we've had more access to things and then now since the pandemic it's like we have even more access to things that were previously more ex- like exclusive it's like you can watch i don't know the berlin phil or something because no one can go to the performance or like yeah, you were saying like pivoting and yeah. Yeah. So I, I really wonder how, th- how we're going to transition out of this when things start to align back to normal in a way. Yeah. And if this zoom sort of setup is still going to be a thing, you know, I wonder if it's more like objectively, if the access has gone up, um, I don't know. There is some like one like somebody's going to write a paper about that one day. But I don't even say it. Like, I wonder if 
like engagement is actually higher. I wonder if like participation is actually higher because I, I can speak like anecdotally if like actually no I can't because I I don't I don't know. I feel like I've gone to less shows even if you count online ones this year than I usually do. Mm-hmm. But I, I don't know. I I haven't really thought about it. And I wonder if that's because the experience is different or if I just like actually haven't done it. Yeah, I don't know. Uh, it's different, that's for sure. Like, the landscape is completely different. And it's going to be, like, for the foreseeable future, like, maybe next year it will be able to kind of look back in retrospect a little bit. But how it feels right now, I personally feel a lot less engaged with, mm-hmm. like, music concertizing, that kind of thing. Um the music making is still happening obviously and like i'm still writing and like recording when i can and playing shows outside like spread out and that kind of thing because i live in texas and it's beautiful all year round or boiling lava hot so like you can do that kind of thing at least a little bit um which to me makes them all feel more valuable like easily more valuable like i care about those experiences a lot but i don't know if I feel or can objectively say that it's easier to access that either mentally or like actually by watching or whatever, um, which is interesting to think about. Um, I might have to like really sit down and think about it. That That's a, I, I like that you went deeper with that, uh, especially like with <clears throat> the fact that we have, we have the literal access to it, meaning that it's there and we can go to it if we want to. But then if we, when we are there, like how engaged are we during, during it, you know? And um, I mean, I know like for me, there's been a bunch of instances with like all these, you know, performances on, on zoom or what have you, where I'm like, Oh, I'm definitely going to go to this. And then that day comes or I'm definitely going to watch it on my laptop. I should say, I'm not going anywhere. (laughs) Um, But uh, that day comes and then it's like, I didn't get something done that day that I wanted to do. And then I'm like, Oh shit, that performance is happening in like 20 minutes. And it's like, I, I need to do this thing instead. I'm not going to go to the performance. It's, you know? It feels a little fleeting sometimes. Yeah. Um, and it feels a little fleeting. It feels a little easier to forget. Mm-hmm. Like my memory is just not as good. My brain feels like mush this year. Like, which I'm sure like a ton of folks can empathize with, but like, I just don't remember stuff like I did last year. Like I keep a calendar and stuff, but even then it's harder to keep track of like my academic work wasn't as strong as I feel like it usually is. Like, it's just tough right now, man. Like people gotta, you know, some folks gotta worry about paying the bills and eating food. And, you know, sometimes you could give a shit about, whatever concerts going on because there's like real material things that I think people are feeling in ways they weren't before. Yeah. Um, I'm I'm like, I'm really fortunate that I have like a stipend that like I have a contract, like whatever. Um, And like, I'm fortunate that Cayman uh, is like working and like all that is fine. And we're like totally good, but like some folks aren't, you know? Uh, And that's really tough. Like, and I just can't imagine that like if i was in that position 
I don't think I would even care, you know, <laughs> mm-hmm. like when somebody's like, well, have you, how many concerts have you been to? It's like, what do you mean? I got like, I got to feed my family, you know? So it's like, I wonder, like, there's a lot of that too. Um, that makes that sort of space challenging, especially for our friends who are like performers, like what gigs, you know, like what shows are you playing really? Um, I know there's stuff like Bandcamp is starting to do like a streaming platform. People do stuff on Twitch, like, youtube you can send like tips and that kind of thing um i can't speak for like the monetary sort of gains that you can get from that or like whatever but probably definitely not the same like like if you're in a string quartet and most of your money is made off of weddings like you know that's not really the situation i mean i'm sure people are still doing that but like not in the same sort of capacity as before. And I think there's a lot of people that are doing that stuff, not really because they even want to, but like you got to eat, you got to keep your career going as much as you can. I'm sure there's people that are playing weddings that don't feel safe doing it and don't want to do it, but they got to keep the lights on. Uh, So I don't know. It it is, it's kind of like every single component part of the whole thing can be analyzed in a way that I don't feel like we did before, at least not, not as much as we could. Um, which that's something I've been thinking a lot about. And even like the last couple of years, that's something I've really been thinking about, but especially this year, like what are those things? Uh, I kind of realized probably like two or three years ago, I think I actually put it on my artist statement when I was applying for my PhD that like my fundamental artistic drive is I want to do cool shit with my friends. Hmm. And like, sometimes I could care less about the actual music, uh, which makes this situation really weird because you're not like doing stuff with people the same way you were before. Um, because like, I'm not doing that sort of like, I'm not going to shows like I used to like everybody who's ever been to like anybody that's been to music school, has been to concerts they they could give a shit what was being played it's about like your friends that are doing it being there hanging out that kind of thing and to me that's like my favorite thing about being a musician engaging in the art world in general um i'm rereading christopher small's musicking right now uh where he talks about like what is like the ritual practice of like concertizing and like he he really analyzes it through like like what is western art music like a conductor and like that kind of thing but the the fundamental question is like if you look at like what is really going on here in like a concert situation which is where a lot of our music is experienced all of those components are different now people try to do to hang on to them like uh a friend of mine had a recital that i ran like sound for a couple months ago it was just me. I was the only person there and they like still came out to bow to a camera. You know, it's so weird because it's just not the same thing, but we're hanging on to those little pieces of it. Um, so it's interesting to think about like how that stuff has changed. And with what I was saying about like my favorite thing is just doing it. Everything about just doing it is different. Like you're not with your friends in the same way. Um, my ensemble that I run here, the electronic ensemble, 
we did our first show and I just like ran it. It was fixed media pieces that the people composed worked in uh, smaller ensembles, writing group projects. They all did their own visual stuff. It was a really cool show, but I premiered on Twitch, which the Twitch chat was like exploding during this whole thing. <laughs> but it's like, you know, you can't help but wonder it's like, are people paying attention to that or the music or is this what musicking is now? uh at this moment in this space kind of thing which on the one hand i think is kind of cool like that's a that's a new world to explore and that's a new thing to really think about but it's just weird because it's like it's different it's not what you're used to at all um and it feels to me it feels a little unnatural like i like going to shows because i can like chat with my friends and like talk about it after the fact but also because i'm able to tune everything else out uh, where if i'm watching a show on like twitch or something check facebook check the weather see what's going on with npr uh the news cycle doesn't stop so it's easy to start doom scrolling when you should be watching a show in a way that i don't think i would do if i was there in real life like even when i go to shows at bars and stuff i don't really look at my phone when music's happening i'm watching a show and like hanging out with my friends and like you know bullshitting about whatever's drama is going on like you know it's just not like that right now everything's kind of different um there's always like people sending messages private messages to each other and that kind of thing which is fun you know somebody you're watching somebody's recital and then you get a private message from someone they're like oh they didn't play that one as well so you know uh, so that's kind of fun but it's just different you know um i'm excited for the prospect of not having to do that anymore but i think that will make my engagement with the digital spaces a little bit more meaningful too because I'll go to a concert in real life, but maybe there will be a concert that I really want to watch in Germany that I can do that now, too. And maybe I'll care about that more when I can pick and choose between the two instead of only having one. I don't know. I, I like that a lot, what you just said about how, you know, when things start to transition or whatever, and we we kind of move back into our normal lives, I guess, how that can uh, affect also your experience in the, in the digital world of, of concerts that might be happening elsewhere and, yeah. or your engagement of it, at least. I mean, uh, a lot of what you said totally resonates. And I, and I think a, a lot of people are experiencing it as well. Where like, I mean, I'm not in school right now, but I do, I do go to zoom webinars and stuff like that. Yeah. And I'll be listening to the person who's lecturing or something. And then there's like this whole chat going on and I'm like, yeah. Should I be involved with this chat or like how much like I'm here for the lecture? Like, you know? Yeah. So um it's there's there's that level of distraction. And it, and like uh in school, like when I like during college and stuff, I, I would always purposely try to sit in the front of the room in class because I'd be so distracted if I sat in the back of the room with everyone sitting in front of me, you know? Yeah. So I had to remove that barrier and like that's almost having the chat going on is in a way, I guess, I mean it depends, you know, you know. Not, it's not the same thing, but uh, how have you, because you, you said that your relationship with music is, is based around what you want to do with your friends. Like you're more yeah. interested, you're, you're sometimes more interested in that. So like, how have you been 
uh, either doing that or, or handling the, the lack thereof. Well, one thing that I think is really cool about all this is seeing people just try to do stuff like, because people really care, you know, like this, this is, this is our lives. Like this is like, like I really give a shit about this. And like a lot of people do. So like seeing people adapt and try things and just see what they can do is part of that experience. Like I, I was supposed to do a bunch of stuff this summer. Most of it all got canceled. Uh, but there was some stuff that pivoted and we like tried new things. Like I, I did the composers conference. I was a from foundation fellow with them and I was supposed to be in real life in Boston at Brandeis. I'm pretty sure. Pretty sure that Brandeis. Um, I hope I just didn't make myself look like an idiot, but that pivoted to online. It was supposed to be in, in real life. Now it was online in a my original project was i was working on like a chamber orchestra piece for like the ensemble that was there which they were like okay so now what we're going to do is we're going to pair individual composers with individual performers and like you're going to write a solo for them we're going to do a digital concert but then we're also going to play like concerts of your previously recorded music we're going to have these like online guest lectures we're going to have these online master classes we're going to like be meeting quite a bit and by the end of it, like I'm really good friends with, with Jack Yarbrough, who you had on last week with this ensemble. And uh, I wrote a solo for him. Turns out we actually know a lot of the same people and we're interested in the same music. Like, and we're like friends now. Like we talk, I, I was talking to him this morning. Um, and I don't think that would have happened the same way if that was in person. I think if I just wrote like an orchestra piece, you know, it wouldn't have that same kind of personal encounter as him and I working one-on-one -on, -one on a collaborative piece and just like talking and like being friends and like now we're still friends or whatever. Um, so that kind of transition ended up being this really beautiful, awesome thing. And then people just tried to do stuff. Like I did the uh, pocket opera workshop with Rhymes with Opera this summer where I wrote like a short art song at electronics piece for one of their performer one of the folks that perform with them regularly. So like stuff like that, just people trying to do things and like trying to engage and like saying that it, it matters and like having that kind of affirmation that like, yeah, this matters. So we're going to do something about it and we're going to like try to experience it. We're going to try to make stuff happen, which is the same with Alex with that orchestra piece I wrote for the BG Philharmonia. Like that's just trying to make stuff happen. You know, um, I had a, peace of mind played by the rep from ensemble i think it's how you say it they're based out of the uk uh but that's a small world because the dude that's the artistic director of it lived in my building when i was in norway <laughs> like we we knew each other like we met each other like six years ago but like now because of like they did uh isolation pieces where like every performer was in a different room and like put the recordings together and i have a lot of music that works really well for that um so that ended up being like a way of doing that and um i i think just people trying you know and then i quote unquote direct the free improv ensemble here at unt it's like a student-ran organization but we play outside on fridays spread out like whatever playing like either graphic pieces text pieces or just like jamming and that i really care about that time you know um because that's like my only real time to play with other people 
mm. in real life. But then there's stuff like the ensemble, the electronics ensemble that I run here, like just trying to figure out how can we do this in a digital space? How can we make art together in that kind of way? Um, and, and then, yeah, like a little bit of the shows, but like there's so many good records got put out this year. Like I've been just on band camp all the time listening to music. Like even though like I, I was talking about studying for my thing earlier, like I still listen to more music than I probably ever did, even like passively just because there's so much stuff out there that I can try to find. And like, I really care about finding it more than I probably did before, or at least actively. So, yeah, I mean, I think there's plenty of ways. Um, I think everybody, at least a little, I don't know, people talked about it on social media all the time, but I feel like a lot of folks reconnected with people Mm -hmm. at the beginning of this whole thing uh, a little bit more. I think that probably helped engagement however you really can, you know? Like, I definitely feel closer with Cayman because we, like, are trapped in an apartment together. <laughs> <laughs> Which I guess doesn't really answer your question, but I guess there's, like, there's ways, you know, there, there's just stuff that's happening. Mm-hmm. And when you really care about something, you're going to try to find ways to make it work at least a little bit, you know? That's true. I, I, I think that's that's important, too, for a lot of people to, to kind of, uh, like, during this time... Um, figuring out how you can do whatever it is that you want to do. I mean, I've said it before on here, but that's part of why I started this podcast uh, is because it's like, like you were saying, there's a way to get COVID project. Wasn't it more or less? I mean, it was (laughs) was like, Oh, let me like, I'm having trouble. You know, I'm struggling like other people trying to figure out what the hell I'm doing with my life. So like, yeah, let me talk to my friends and see what they're doing. You know? Yeah, totally. Um, Yeah. I feel like a ton of people have COVID projects. I, I, I wrote a book of piano preludes and this guy hit me up on Reddit and uh, his name is Richard P. John. And we just like started talking and I was like, he's a pianist and he's a composer. His music's really good, but he hit me up and he was like, Hey, I like your stuff. Like, can we just like talk? And I was like, yeah, here's my music that I'm working on right now. Are you interested in playing him? And he was like, yeah. And he recorded all of them. And, I I tried sending them to a couple record labels just to like demo, see what they thought. And a lot of them got back to me and they were like, hey man, we're swamped because so many people are doing things right now. Like even if we put this out, it wouldn't be for like two or three years. Right. Like, yeah. Like there's a lot of COVID projects right now. There's a lot of just people trying to do stuff, you know, like I, there was that article that came out early in the year that was like, I'm not making original art right now or something like that. That I think was on, I care if you listen. I think I recall that. Yeah. And like, I'm not dogging on that. Cause I think that article was super <laughs> important. Cause I feel like a lot of people, people feel pressure to do stuff right now too. Um, to kind of talk about the other side of it. I feel like people think they need to be doing stuff there was a time at the beginning of this whole thing where folks were like this is going to be like an artist residency in my house or something and it's like it's not it's a global pandemic like you know it's not it's not an artist retreat like you know this is unprecedented and like awful so you don't have to do that 
if like especially if you don't feel like you need to or should or can't or whatever but that's just not me that's like not what I do like if I wasn't doing this I'd be really bored like even if like my stuff sucks like I'm not saying anything about quality of anything I've ever done but just like trying to do it (laughs) even just to occupy time is just kind of what keeps me going like but that's just me you know so at the same time with everybody doing covid projects and like people trying to make stuff happen there is that other side where it's like some people just can't and you know that's that's real (laughs) that hurts um i don't really have a good solution for that because it's not my experience but i think it's important to talk about too um because i think i think i know a couple people that feel really stagnant because of everything going on and like i'm i'm kind of worried about that too like i start my dissertation next year and then i'm out of school like i don't have that safety net and a lot of people don't have that safety net right now it's like well what are you gonna do um so like i feel that anxiety too uh and i don't know but this is just what i do and this is what i did uh and it's been working out for me so yeah, I, that's the thing I think people need to kind of, um, through all this, is like they're, everyone has their own coping mechanisms that they use or that they need to use in order to, to handle certain situations, especially something like this that's so unprecedented. And whatever whatever each person needs to do for themselves is, is what they should do. Yeah. You know, um, whether you view it as like an artist residency or like a time to reflect on the horrors of the world or whatever, like if, if that's what you need to do it in order to feel present in the moment or get to the next moment, that's probably what you should do. Yeah. um, I might misquote this, but uh, one of the professors at UNT, Kirsten Broberg gave a presentation about how when everything kind of came to a screeching halt, she kind of, she found herself not working on anything. Like all of her projects got put off for like a year at least, you know, or whatever. Real quick. Uh, what is her field? Kirsten Broberg. She's a composer. Okay. Um, he's really good. Check her out, check out UNT stuff. Um, but she gave a presentation about kind of reflecting on like identity and like who she is as an artist and like a person, because she found all of her projects came to like a halt. And she didn't really have anything to work on with like urgency. I think she said it was the first time that had happened in like 15 years or something. Um, so she was able That's to like, really reflect on her work and like reflect on what matters to her as an artist and that kind of thing. And, you know, that's not productive in the sense of creating content. But that's incredibly productive in terms of the content you're going to make later. Mm-hmm. Like, and that's really important. Like, even if you're not writing but you're like thinking about it (laughs) i think that's pretty that's good that's productive in the long run um because you're learning about yourself and how you work and that kind of thing that's one that's one of the things honestly i think that has has been a, a um for me especially like a lot of reflection this past year it was because you started your like website your collaborative composer kind of ethos statement mm-hmm. like that stuff yeah um, yeah i can't write shit unless the performer is like <laughs> yeah. like uh um i rely heavily on, on on the performer's uh input and everything with stuff like that and and that's why i sort of realized i was like yeah i i i need to 
I need to put it out there that I, I I'm like what I do is is a collaboration of of uh, can you do this? What does it sound like? How does it work? Where's your limits? You know, mm-hmm. um, how how often like because you were just mentioning Catherine is that her name? Kirsten. Kirsten. Sorry. Kirsten Broberg. Yeah. Kirsten Broberg. Uh, she she had this huge sort of moment this past year with her. That's crazy that for 15 years she's been so active and then all of a sudden it's like not... it might have it might not have been 15 years but yeah it well, was the... like a while <laughs> yeah yeah just that alone I mean like uh, that's that definitely necessitates that sort of reflection I think in order to continue moving forward but how often do you find yourself in these days with being self reflective or 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 are you not at all. How often am I self-reflective? Yeah, to the extent where like you're going as far as Kirsten did with like, what is my artistic purpose or what am I trying to accomplish? Oh, I, or... I think about that all the time mm-hmm. um, because I I feel like I've only just in the last couple of years started to really be able to grasp it. Um, so I, I think about that all the time. But the kind of big thing is what we were talking about earlier just like engaging and doing it and like participating and like it's kind of a uh, radical naivety about like creating and like doing and acting and like having that kind of affirmation um there's an idols record came out a couple years ago you would like idols you should listen to them uh just idols yeah um they, their record is called joy as an act of resistance mm. and like i just that title resonates with me a lot like because that's just kind of how i feel working and like writing i don't even like using it, the word working because it doesn't like sometimes it's laborious yeah but it's like this is my jam this is just what i like to do like this is, <laughs> this, is this is how i like to spend my time you know um thinking about it, reading it, writing it, like, whatever. Like, that's just kind of what gets me going. Uh, Maybe one day that'll change, and maybe one day I'll find everything just kind of stops. Uh, But right now, that's that's not where I'm at. Um, Again, that says nothing of quality. (laughs) Everything I wrote this year might be complete shit, but, like, it, you know, it feels good to be doing it, and, like, that's doing it is what I care about a lot more. Um, I'm working right now I've, I've been working on this like series of pieces that I call grid pieces um, that that orchestra piece that we've referenced like three times as part of mm-hmm. um, but I was talking to Anton Boyer on the phone a couple days ago uh, he's a composer like kind of like the patriarch I guess is the best way of saying it of the Von Le Weiser collective although he might not like hearing me say that I don't know <laughs> but we were talking about just like writing and stuff. And he was like, you should write one of these grid pieces a day for a year. Uh, so I've been doing that. <laughs> um, I wrote one this morning. Uh, it might not be good, but like doing it, you know, like engaging with it, participating in it. Maybe it'll never be performed. Maybe it will. Like, who cares? It's that initiation of like the creative act that I that I love. That's, you know, uh, it's kind of what I hang my hat on at the end of the day. Uh, and I think um, somebody asked me a couple of days ago, they were like, how have you been so productive through this? And it's like, I don't know, man, like I just write, like 
doesn't say if that doesn't tell you if any of it's good or not it's just this is what i like doing and this is my jam and i list it on my website when it's done because somebody told me during an entrepreneurial class one time that i should like you know it's just (laughs) what i do i just i finish it i put it up and i go to the next one like uh, uh i like that a lot man that's that's very like process driven maybe i don't think i have a process i just like do stuff sometimes like every piece is a little bit different that's part of the fun so when you're when you're like do you feel like you're engaged like yeah that's part of my engagement with stuff is just trying stuff like these grids are part of a huge like sproth of things but that book of piano preludes i wrote i was thinking about collections like what is like a collection of things and like books of preludes and etudes and stuff are kind of like the gimmies for classical music like historical western classical music is like kind of the go-to for some of that like i have a keyboard you know whatever so i can write these piano preludes and like explore what that means to me which was challenging and fun um i had had conversations with a friend of mine about writing a woodwind quintet which no offense to any woodwind players out there but i think the woodwind quintet is one of the most collegiate and lame sounding ensembles so i was like how can i tackle that ensemble to really make it something that i like because i don't think i've ever heard a wood like a woodwind ensemble or woodwind quintet sorry a woodwind quintet i don't think i've ever heard a woodwind quintet that i was like yeah this is my jam so i wanted to make one that i really liked um which was really hard but it was really fun Mm. uh so you you did write the piece though i did it's been performed yeah the recordings man (laughs) we're gonna do a studio recording in january um that was a fun kind of problem solving for COVID thing because at UNT performances still happen, but obviously you have to be really careful about like space and time. And, you know, they call woodwind instruments, super emitters. So you have to be careful about like keeping people 12 feet apart, only playing for like 30 minutes and then leaving the room for 30 minutes. So it has all that kind of challenges, but yeah, we did the piece. It happened. It was cool. Um, the recording just didn't end up coming out the way I wanted it to. So we're going to do it again and get a better recording. But that was also one of my, I don't do a ton of stuff with microtones. Uh, at least like quarter tones, quarter tones specifically. Um, and so I wanted to do that too. So I kind of did two things at the same time with that piece. Was this a grid piece as well? No, that, that was an explicitly notated piece. Um, yeah, that was a lot more like traditionally performed written kind of thing but you know that's that's that reflection in creation kind of thing like i've never written a woodwind quintet i don't really like woodwind quintets in general i think the oboe and bassoon are the hardest two instruments for me to write for and they're (laughs) both in that ensemble and you know i kind of suck at using quarter tones in my music but i like them so how can i make a thing that does all of that that i like um is that kind of reflective space. Um, and then like trying stuff like that rhymes with opera thing. I was talking about earlier. I wrote a piece for voice and tape, which I had never done that before tape. It was a fixed media thing, um, but I'd never done that before. So that was like a fun little challenge. Uh, yeah. That kind of just thinking about stuff. I wrote that ba- a bass flute piece for Natalie Magana, who was on your podcast also. 
and I wanted to, all right, I wanted to like really stretch out what I thought was like melodic continuity. Uh, so that piece is like really, well, most of my music is really sparse, but that piece is like a little tune that's just like extracted apart and whatever. And that was kind of that challenge for that piece, just something I was thinking about at the time. I like I like the the idea. Of, for me, I know a lot of the more interesting challenges I find that I'm excited to tackle are the ones like you said about the woodwind quintet, where it's like, how do I write this not in the typical way, and and handle it where it's like something that I am satisfied with. Yeah, I think I would challenge the word typical there because mm-hmm. I I don't. I don't, I don't think about that with my music. Like when I'm writing, I don't think about like, is this typical? Is this new? I mostly think about, do I like it? Like, I, I don't, you know, I'm (laughs) to go back to that quality thing. Like, it doesn't mean it's necessarily good, Mm. but it's rare that I write a piece that I don't like because I'm writing music that I want to listen to that like, I really care about that. I really like hearing. So when I was writing the woodwind quintet, I was like, I've never really heard a woodwind quintet that I like. What would a woodwind quintet that I like sound like? And like trying to find that out. Um, Which I don't think is so much a question of, is it a typical use of this ensemble because like typical uses of ensembles are sometimes that way because it just works, you know, and I'm sure there's stuff in my woodwind quintet that is typical. There's probably stuff that's really naive and stupid. Like why the hell is the bassoon that high? Like uh, that kind of stuff. So, but the overall kind of sound is like, it's a piece that I want to listen to. Like it's a piece that I would like to hear. Mm. And I think that's kind of another major thing with the music that I do make is that, do I like it? You know, rather than, eh, it's not, it's not like a disregard for the audience. Cause I don't think anything I've ever done or any idea I'm ever going to have is that weird and radical that nobody's going to get it. Mm-hmm. I trust my taste enough to think that if I like it, there's a good chance that somebody else is going to like it, or at least somebody like-minded is going to like it. Um, Which I guess is like the negative part of that is I don't think I write particularly challenging music, like orally challenging music, because I know that that's, I'm writing for an audience that is like-minded to me, Um, which is fine. I think like, uh yeah i don't know you know what i mean totally no 100 percent, man uh and that's important too i mean everyone has a certain aesthetic and and niche that they work with and uh or else like why why else would you know would you be um spending time and focusing on that one thing unless you didn't care enough about it you know so like like you like to to your point of finding like-minded people and and still writing for an audience but it's it's whoever aligns with your you know uh musical interests and stuff 
Yeah. And I mean, that's not, I don't want that to be like exclusionary either. Like everybody's welcome to come hang, you know? And if you don't like it, we can talk about that. Cause I think that's fun. <laughs> I, I, I wish we spent more time being critical in that kind of way. Like mm-hmm. I read this book this earlier this year called seven days in the art world. I don't remember who it's by, but there's a chapter in that book about the author sat in on an art critique at Cal arts. That was like, 24 hours long or something like it was like some crazy long seminar Mm -hmm. where they just like all sat in the same room like all day and like critiqued each other's work and like i want to do that like that Mm -hmm. sounds awesome like i wish we could engage critically like that which i feel like we do all the time with other people's stuff like did you hear that piece by so-and-so it sucks doesn't it <laughs> rather than like hey man that piece you wrote didn't really work so well did it like you know you, you don't have that kind of direct conversation and I, I i like when that happens um i had a piece posted on youtube not that long ago, like a couple days ago and this guy was like i like this but not this this and this about it and like i was like cool yeah let's talk about it and we had a little conversation in the YouTube comments, but like, I like that. Like, mm-hmm. I like that kind of back and forth. I don't think it's like, as long as people aren't trying to be dicks, like as long as somebody is not trying to like hurt your feelings or something. And it's like, we're actually having a conversation. I think that stuff is really fun. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't remember how I got there. What were we talking about? <laughs> oh, so many things. <laughs> yeah, I, I like that too. I like um, when people, I like asking questions and I like being asked questions that I really don't know a lot about. Like I like if someone asks me something about a topic that I'm unfamiliar with, I like it because then it makes me have to think about, well, what what do I think about that thing with my limited knowledge? That doesn't mean that I'm right or that I'm wrong, but it just like, it, it engages the critical thinking and, and yeah, you know. Um, and I always appreciate that, uh, you know, like I said, asking and being asked those questions. Yeah. Um, oh shit. What was I going to say? I can't remember. It was the thing about it too, is I think you and your opinions are not necessarily the same thing. Like you can change your mind and you can like learn and like, that's what an intellectual life is, you know, like you engage, you think, you read, you talk, you change your mind, you learn, like whatever, like, it's not that big of a deal. Like, you know, right now, I really don't like the new Star Wars movies, <laughs> but like in 10 years, maybe I'll look back on them and be like, actually, you know, like they're not that bad and that's okay. Like, that's fine. And it's the same way about like, any kind of artistic practice like you can grow and change and like engage and like say something and then five years later not feel that way anymore like a lot of the music i was making when i started like writing experimental music was like text scores and graphic scores and that kind of thing and then i totally stopped doing that and like kind of actively like shat on that kind of thing but now that's my jam like i didn't realize like I didn't know what I didn't know. And so learning and figuring out what I do know and what I do care about, what I do like through those challenging conversations and like really talking about it and stuff that makes you more engaged with your, your stuff, but then everybody else's. And then if somebody has a, a point that can convince you, 
you don't need to be like defensive about it. It's just, it's just talking, you know, like it's, it's that kind of just engaging critically with your own opinions. You know? mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I like that a lot. I mean, it's uh it's sort of an interesting thing. I I've, I've noticed that a lot of people seem more reluctant to give their view on something. And I've had conversations with people and I'll ask them a question and, and they'll be like, Oh, I don't know enough about that to talk about it. And I'm like, that's oh, okay. I don't know anything about it either, but what are your thoughts about it? <laughs> like, yeah. I just want to know what you think. I don't want to know what someone else thinks that you're telling me, you know? Yeah. True. Like you also, yeah. What somebody else thinks that you're telling me. Yeah. But at the same time, like your opinions are generally a synthesis of what you've heard and read and what you agree with or what you disagree totally. with. Um, totally. Totally. That's, I mean, that's what intellectual inquiry is too. Like taking other people's ideas and mouthing them into your idea. I don't know, but I mean, that's kind of what makes friendships like valuable is how you like back and forth engage with those kind of things. Like when you're close enough with people to really talk about stuff, or if you're just like two kind of people that can really dig into something. You know, you might not, nobody's going to win, whatever that means. Nobody's going to like, there's there's not, it's not like you're trying to beat somebody. It's that you're trying to just engage in that space of like thought and inquiry, but also like affirmation of like, yeah, we care about this enough to talk about it. And like, we care about each other enough to at least listen. Mm -hmm. Um, which I think that kind of stuff is valuable. Uh, I think there's folks that don't want to do that. Uh, there's plenty, everybody knows somebody that doesn't want to hear other opinions, but I don't know. I think it's kind of boring. <laughs> I think that's true. I, I, and, um, I, I, I do think also that there's a, there's a, an amount of people don't want to be wrong they also don't want to say the wrong thing. Yeah. And I, I think it's true about everybody. Like, I don't want to be wrong either. <laughs> like, and I don't want to say the wrong thing either. I'm like, I'm trying to be very thoughtful with this conversation right now, because mm-hmm. like people are going to listen to this. Like, it's not just you and I on the phone, Adam. Um, and I don't want to be wrong, but like my mindset's different because of that, you know, but that's not, that's not the same thing as being like, an asshole about it. I don't, <laughs> I don't think it's the same thing at all. Um, I, God, I think like, especially in 2020, like there's just like so much of that going on. Like people just doubling down on it. And like, I've like, like to the point that it's almost surprising when people are like, Oh no, you're right. Like, you know what I mean? Like that, like sometimes that's like, oh, I didn't expect you to actually end up agreeing with me at the end of this conversation. Like, why is that weird? Like, why is it weird that people can come to terms like that? It shouldn't be. Uh, what, what do you mean exactly? Cool that, you know? what, do, what do you mean come to terms with, uh, what, like agreeing with someone? Yeah, like there, there's definitely, I, I, I have found myself sometimes surprised when like I disagree with somebody and we get into like a conversation about something and then 
their opinion changes Mm -hmm. because like they agree with what I've said because I'm so like, I feel like everybody's so used to people just like doubling down. I'm like, no, this is what I think. And I'm not going to change that no matter what you say Mm -hmm. that when people are like, Oh, you're right. I was wrong. That like, that's kind of weird. And like, even like, you know, I don't want to get like super political with this conversation, but like stuff going on with like the election right now, like there's just factual things that people are just like doubling down on being incorrect. Mm-hmm. And like, it's not like, I just don't get it. Like, it, it, I just don't understand why folks can double down on just like falsehood like that. Like, but I think that kind of permeates in a casual conversation. Like, you know, I don't like the new Star Wars movies. And if I get into conversation about it, like I'll find myself doubling down on how much I don't like it. Well, that person is doubling down on how much they do like it. And it doesn't go anywhere. It's just us yelling at each other. And like, maybe that's entertaining, but it's also like not the most healthy way to look at the world, you know, mm-hmm. because it does bleed into other stuff. And then you just start ignoring reality at a certain point. If you if you take that to its logical conclusion, you'll ignore facts and like people saying like coronavirus. It's it's not even as bad as the flu. That is factually incorrect. Like it it is it has been demonstrated to be incorrect. Or like people are saying like you know. I don't get enough oxygen when I wear my mask. That is factually incorrect. Like that has been demonstrated to be incorrect, but people just like don't want to hear it for whatever reason. And so it's, it's when you talk about art, it is even more strange, I think, because somebody liking X piece and somebody not liking X piece is not going to result in somebody in a coma you know it's it's a piece of music it's not it's not that the stakes aren't that high and when you when you open up to the possibility that like you might be wrong or like somebody else might be more correct i think you open yourself up to that kind of engagement with more meaningful spaces too mm-hmm. like cuz when the stakes are low and you're coming to fight I just think that's an unproductive way to look at the world, you know? Yeah, I think part of that too, uh, all really well said, by the way. Um, But I think a part of that too is also the person, how the person is coming to that conversation. Like, are they coming with the intent of educating or being educated or like trying to discuss like, or neither, like, you know, because that matters. And um, uh I think that's a lot of where resistance can come from is, is when, when you hear someone saying something that you already disagree with. So then all of a sudden you're like, Oh, well, let me tell you about this. (laughs) You know? Yeah. Um, There's this book that I've mentioned a bunch of times on here, but I will never stop mentioning it because I think it's important called the righteous mind, why good people are divided by politics and religion. Mm -hmm. And it's by this psychologist named Jonathan Haidt. And um, it's a really, really interesting read. And he goes into kind of what we're talking about right now, where why people uh, dig their heels into the sand about something, even when they're wrong. And um, I forget what he calls it. Moral. 
Um, oh shit. I can't remember. Well, here, I, I'll, I'll paint one of the scenarios that he gives. Cause it's an interesting one. He says, um, he, he, he gives this made up story about a brother and a sister who traveled to the mountain, some mountain range in like, I don't know, somewhere in Europe. And it's just the two of them. And they, they, they go camping and, um, they care a lot about each other. So they decide they want to have sex because it will strengthen their love and relationship for one another. Um, she can't get pregnant because she's on birth control and or just maybe physically can't get pregnant. He can't impregnate her because I don't know his, uh, his swimmers don't work. Um, they have sex and then that's it. They never do it again. And no one ever finds out about it. Mm-hmm. Is that wrong? Mm-hmm. and um the idea here is like putting people in a position where it's like what do you think about this is this wrong and he's sort of painting the picture that you know every the majority of the reasons why someone would say why it's wrong are kind of taken away but a lot of people still will say well i don't know why i just it's wrong to me i believe it's wrong mm-hmm. i'm not making a statement by the way whether i think it's right or wrong or anything okay. I'm just, I'm just explaining the scenario. Um, What does he call that? But anyways, basically he's, he's painting the picture that even when people are wrong, they still say, they still deny that they're wrong. They still will stand. They will, I have trouble saying this. They will hold their stance in their position. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. I get what you're saying. In any case, very interesting read. Um, And one of the things he explains too, when it comes to like having, discussions and conversations is we react emotionally Mm -hmm. and then go through moral reasoning to reinforce our reaction. Yeah. So like, if you said like, I don't know, COVID COVID is worse than the flu. And I'm like, no, it's not. And then, and then you're like, well, why? And I'm like, well, because, because, and then I, I try to reason my way through my response. Yeah. You know? So it's like backtracking in a way. Yeah, Yeah, I I can't help but wonder if that example that you gave, I think it's it's challenging with that kind of stuff because it's so abstract, which I think is partially what happens with like gigantic existential crises. Mm -hmm. Like it's it's kind of abstract to think about. Like you know, almost three hundred thousand people contracted COVID like the other day. You know, um, it's hard to reason that in your head, and so I think how like when people double down on that, maybe it's like just because you just kind of can't. So whatever you just kind of default to something and dig your heels in. I don't know. Um, I don't get it. Uh, which maybe with like the example of the people that you were just giving the hypothetical about and maybe it's like similar to that like you can't really know because it's too big or in that case it's too particular mm-hmm. it's too abstract that it's just i don't know it's a weird scenario and it, yeah. even you know like like you're saying um people having trouble separating themselves or their ideals or beliefs with what is actually the case you know mm-hmm. even statistically speaking um yeah i i don't know the book well enough but i do think that he uh he he explains these things 
quite thoroughly and goes through this whole process of talking about the history of philosophy and how one philosophy informed another, which then led to another. And then at some point he says, anyone who believes in truth would not look to a philosopher to find truth or something like that. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I was like, Oh, that's a, that's a profound statement. <laughs> yeah. There's interesting stuff. When you, when you like thinking about truth is tough. Like eyewitness accounts are like terribly inaccurate like yeah human perception is so easy to manipulate like you can you can plant false memories into people like so yeah yeah yeah, it's who's truth sometimes but i don't know like the end of the day i think a lot of it comes down to just empathy Mm -hmm. like are you giving people the benefit of the doubt, but are you also acting in a way that benefits people or not? Um, which I guess is, that's my biggest issue with this whole fucking mask thing is like, it doesn't actually do anything to you. Like where, like, well, I mean, like, I guess there is self-preservation or whatever, but like, it's not that big of a deal. Mm-hmm. So you're acting against it is in just entirely out of your own force of will not some sense of even necessarily self-preservation maybe or like what but it's just like and it's not about you but even when you think about like you know politics on the one hand but even like when you talk about art like are you engaging with it in an empathetic way or not which when we you know this year with like everything going on with like George Floyd, but also the stuff that went on with like the Shankarian journal from UNT and like Philip Yule and all that stuff. Like, are we talking about this in an empathetic way or not? Are you doubling down on yourself or are you having a conversation that actually is important to helping people understand um or just you know like empathetic in terms of broadening your own perspective on things like mm-hmm. which was kind of my biggest one of my biggest things about what was going on with um philip ewell's article well presentation and like that journal's reaction to it was like man this isn't new like people have been talking about this stuff for a long time like he wasn't the first person to say that, you know, and like there's, there's books that were published in the eighties and nineties, like Catherine Bergeron's uh, disciplining music, um, Christopher Small's musicking, like all this kind of stuff is like, there there's people have been talking about this and people have been engaging with this kind of stuff for a while. So when you double down on saying that it's fundamentally not true, are you even engaging with it that much or are you just dismissing it outright because you're scared like, or it makes you uncomfortable or are you just not empathetic to the experience that it is real to somebody else, you know? And I, I do think that goes both ways. Cause if somebody doesn't believe something, I think you should have that conversation to like explain things and not be like, you're an asshole. But at the same time, the people that dig in their heels in the opposite direction, they need to do that too. And I think that conversation needs to be had more rather than like people just throwing, throwing shit at each other, you know? Um, 
and I like I definitely believe one side of that. Like, but if you're not empathetically engaging with it, you might as well not even be talking. Mm-hmm. You know, like, which is kind of what bummed me out about that journal in particular was just kind of like shitting on that presentation more than anything else. That's that's what I thought was so disgusting about it too. Like, yeah, there was some like real half-baked shit in there, but it was just a pile on. It wasn't actually critical intake, like critical inquiry. It was just that kind of gross, like finger pointing, um, which I don't think we need to be do. We need to be doing right now. Uh, yeah. I don't know. It's tricky, especially when stuff like is that big. Like when you're talking about a theory of art in general, because mm-hmm. it's it kind of hard to grasp those edges, you know, um, because there's so much other stuff you got to learn and explore and try to understand. Yeah. There's a lot of complexity in that. Um, how do you navigate these sort of conversations? I mean, cause you mentioned being empathetic and uh, uh, not digging your heels in the sand sort of thing, um, which is hard in general, but that, and that's, well, what... I mean, I mean, I'm not perfect. I'm not perfect at it either, but like I try not to get frustrated as much as I can. Um, I used to be like a really angry, grumpy person, but I definitely try not to like fall into those traps or anything. But I think just keeping the conversation going and trying to learn and like trying to discover what things are, like read the bibliography and then read those papers and like go through the rabbit hole. Like, you know, watch the YouTube videos, watch the conversations happen, like take it all in and just explore like art is an inherently empathetic experience you know so we all we've all been practicing it we all know how to listen we all know how to engage like that it's just you got to do that with your opinions too mm-hmm. you know um i don't remember who said this but there's like the fact that a landscape painting exists implies that there's somebody there to see it this stuff cannot exist in a vacuum. So you have to take that as a given that you're going to have to engage with that kind of empathetic process. Uh, You know, for my work and my art is really important because like, that's what I like doing. I just like working with people and it's the same with what you were saying about yours. Like that collaborative spirit is empathetic you know so we've all done it it's this isn't new so i don't think doubling down and isolating your perspective is a good idea in a really kind of broad sense whether or not that's like like you should learn the historical context of western art music theory you should but you should also learn how it was used as like a colonizing force and how it like destroyed indigenous people's work and you should learn about like the semiotic references and like the inner contextuality like we should talk about how the concerto it has become like paradigmatic of like capitalism and like the great men great man kind of theory because it's highlighting an individual who we will 
pay our attention in return for viewing a skill that we do not have. Mm-hmm. And we are putting them on a literal pedestal to kind of see that. I think it's important to like look at art in that kind of way and see that broader context. Cause I don't think, I don't think the story is as simple as like music theory developed because it did like, that's not the, that's not what happened. You know, like Donald Trump is not president because he won an election. It's all the other stuff that goes with it. Like, this is why I think everybody should read Christopher Small's music again. Cause it just kind of like talks about a lot of that stuff. Like Baroque musicians were improvisers and they knew what they were doing. Like, like a uh, figured bass and that kind of stuff. Like it, people freak out about that. You give that to like a concert pianist. Now they're like, I'm not doing that. Like, mm-hmm. cause that's not the skills that we teach. Um, and there's a reason for it. There's like a, there's history to it that isn't just about the music. It's not just about the dots on the page. It's also like culture and philosophy and thought and all this other bigger stuff too. Um, and I think that's kind of a place I think a lot of people should spend more time thinking about, which when we talk about, you know, like is music theory racist? If you don't, that other stuff you can't even meaningfully answer that question because that question in and of itself demands information beyond what you're just going to get if you study music you know what i mean Mm -hmm. um you have to kind of look past the dots you have to look past like the voice leading (laughs) you know it's because it's not actually a question about that it's history philosophy like it's all that stuff combined which i think in you know 2020 and all that like that kind of comes to a head right now with what people are talking about and i think it's really good like i think it's awesome i you know i wish we were having these conversations more because they're hard and they're freaky and like uh you know, I feel like I, I'm a little nervous that this podcast is going to be listened to by people because I might sound like a total jackass right now. But like, I hope it's apparent that I'm coming to this with the assumption that like, maybe I'm wrong and we can talk about that. Mm-hmm. We can find out, we can learn, we can like, have you read this paper? Have you seen this talk? Like, that kind of thing, you know, and that's, that's what I want to do. That's what I like. Like, that's the art world that I enjoy. I don't super care that much about, you know, Shinkirian analysis, but I really (laughs) care about this other stuff that we can talk about, you know, Um, the same way I don't super care that much about. uh, Yeah. Like, you know, it's just a lot. And as far as like, what do you do to keep engaged is you participate and you listen and you read and you learn, listen to stuff, you read stuff you disagree with, like that kind of thing. Um, which is really annoying when you're on Reddit and you want to like read the crazy right wing stuff just so you know what they're talking about. <laughs> it can be really disheartening, but you know, you're learning what you're, what you're, what you stand for, kind of like what you're fighting for, but you're, 
you know, in some ways what you're fighting against, like that kind of stuff. And it takes work, you know, that takes time and it's not always fun, but I think it's rewarding in that you learn your position. And I think you learn that kind of empathetic, like more broad sort of implications of what you're talking about. You know what I mean? Mm Mm-hmm. It's definitely a lot. um, I think this, like this definitely connects to the conversation we're having earlier about, well, I mean, because it was was a follow-up to that, but um, your morals and stuff, right? So like, I, the way I understand it, the way I view things is that people have uh, certain values, which then um, align with their morals that they hold throughout whatever like every decision that they make right Mm -hmm. so the decisions you make is based off of some value that you have or else you probably wouldn't have done that thing for the most part sometimes you do it out of like you feel guilty or you feel like you have to but then you're resentful about it because some value was um you know like you compromised your own value exactly yeah, yeah yeah and i think that connects to this sort of thing like uh, like the the very broad idea of like right versus left wing politics. It's like what one person on the right might argue for something a person on the left would say the exact opposite for and not understand why that person on the right would say that. Like, how could you think that? Mm-hmm. Are you kidding me? Like you don't think about other, you know, yeah. but uh, the point I'm getting at is no one is going to understand fully what someone else thinks or why they think what they think because their morals and values don't align. Mm-hmm. So like this whole discussion about whether or not um, music theory is racist or like uh, you need to do this work because it's like, if you're trying to engage in it in a certain way, some people aren't um, in it to engage for those reasons. Mm-hmm. So then to, to the, the, like wondering why, like, like why would you not think about that? that's something that's like more of a moral or value stance that you might have versus what they have. Yeah. You know, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Yeah. I think you're saying. And, and so then that kind of comes down to the conversation of like, what's right, like whether that's right, Mm -hmm. but then whether it's right is really kind of, that's another subjective thing because that what you think is right is based off of what you morally believe to be true. Mm -hmm. You know? Yeah. I think those questions of morals it gets it just it gets hard to talk about because you're prodding at the fundamental kind of core of your being like i I think in a lot of ways like your your moral stances whatever they are kind of make up the foundation of how you're going to do everything else and so it's hard to change those it's hard to really kind of get at that kind of like fundamental system of thought totally and i think that's what makes it so challenging and like you know somebody might be listening to me and be like this Corey dude is like i don't know like a leftist hippie (laughs) but like all i'm trying to do is like make the world happier better i guess well i guess that's like a terrible way of putting it but like i'm just trying to like do the right thing 
as far as like allowing people to do the right thing and flourish as well. Mm-hmm. And I think if you're, I feel very comfortable with that as like a moral foundation, you know, and I think that there are people that do not have that as their moral foundation and they don't even realize it, mm-hmm. you know, like, and that goes into like everything, like people's upbringing, their religious beliefs or political stuff, but it's all based on that foundation. And you might not, re- you might not even know what you're really saying. And I might not even really know what I'm saying, but like, that's kind of what I believe is that I need to engage with the world in a way that is empowering for other people and like helps other people like as much as I can. And I, I legitimately think there's folks that just don't have that as their foundational belief. I think there's a lot of self-preservation. There's a lot of just like maybe tradition or something, but like, that's just not me. And I, I don't think that's right. I think it's not about you I think that individualism can be kind of dangerous because, you know, as much as we might not want to believe it or it might be existentially terrifying, like we live in a global community, like of human beings. And like, you know, that's kind of why nationalists tend to not believe in climate change is because it's a global problem that cannot be solved by the individual. Mm. And that's terrifying because it is it's horrifying it's awful it's like existential crisis up the like cranked up to 12 like and that can just like shatter your belief system when you believe in like that individual beyond the 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 whole the total mm-hmm. and seeing that kind of like total space is really challenging it's hard like cuz it's it's a lot like um and it'll like kind of challenge what you really think about yourself because you have to reflect on yourself. You have to be critical of yourself. You have to be like, yeah, like, am I actually doing the right thing? Am I actually helping people? Am I not like, or am I just saying that I am? And like, I'm not perfect. Like if anybody's listening to this, please God understand that. Like, I'm not trying to be self-righteous here. I'm just trying to tell you what I'm trying to do. Like, and I'm screwing it up every day and I'm like not making those strides every day. But I think going into it, just like trying to do that is important, you know? Totally. And, you know, teach me, like, teach me how to do it better. Like, let's learn how to do it better. Let's learn how to engage better. Let's learn how to help each other more. Um, And I think there's a whole lot of loud people right now that just don't care about that. Um, on the one hand is really shocking but it's also like kind of your instinct of preservation too you know yeah i always i always kind of uh jump back to that point where when you talk to someone about something very specific and then their response to that is like something totally different than what you're talking about like i I can't i can't think of an example honestly I guess in a way you can say like when someone strawmans or something, but I mean, yeah, totally. Yeah. But 
it's I always go back to thinking like that I was at some point it's usually after the conversation because you're like you're like reflecting on what the conversation was about yeah it's super hard to have these conversations in the moment that's one thing I'm kind of nervous about right now that we're doing this podcast is like I'm just riffing I'm just talking like it's totally might have screwed up a couple things (laughs) (laughs) well dude we can pivot into whatever direction you want to go and like I don't want you to feel like you're in a weird spot well because I think this stuff is important to do like right now what is today december 14th 2020 like i i think this like i i believe this right now like and you know whatever i learned down the road i hope it's more and it's closer to that ideal that i want the world to be um like i hope that if i'm wrong whatever i learn in place of what i know now helps me be more empathetic, helps me be more caring, helps me like want to help more. Um, and some of that's just hard. Like some of it, cause you just gotta like really think and try and challenge yourself. And like, I'm not good at it. Nobody's good at it, but like trying that's important. You know, I think, I think this totally ties into what we were talking about earlier with how people cope with 20, uh, well, yeah, 2020, our our individual lives have been so greatly impacted, which even more like our public lives have been impacted. And so being empathetic in this time is important, but at the same time, it can be challenging for some people too. Mm-hmm. Like you were saying how some people might not be handling this gracefully. And I don't mean that in a way where it's like they, they did it poorly, but um, it's just challenging them in a different way. Yeah. Whether that's financially or health wise. I mean, I was reading about this guy, um, I think it was on Reddit, but this guy was saying how uh, 2019, him and his wife were like in a really great spot financially, emotionally, and all this stuff. They had they had one child already and then she was pregnant. And then 2020 hit, quarantine hit, he lost his job and and like try was trying to find some sort of work. It wasn't working out, had to dig into their savings in order to pay for things. And now they're in this like really bad situation mm-hmm. where, um, you know, like financially they're not in a good spot. They have a new child, you know, yeah. um, that's a very different experience than what I'm having. Totally. Yeah. You know? Um, and it's so weird. Like this whole idea, like empathy and self-preservation I would, I feel like that's, those are two conflicting things in a way. Mm-hmm. Um, and at this time, like, I guess, I guess it's circumstantial. Like, how do you, how do you deal with that? How do you deal with like the instances in your personal life where you're trying to make sure you're okay, but then at the yeah. same time, looking at everyone in your, in your vicinity and like your general community and then being like, I need to make sure you're okay too, though. Yeah. And I mean, that sometimes it's hard. Like, <clears throat> I, I don't know where I read this, but it's like that saying, um, if equality makes you feel, uh, if equality makes you feel like you're being persecuted, that's part of your privilege. So like, that's a, that's a really challenging thing to grapple with because you can, this is some like, you know, if you are like, well, don't take anything away from me. I'm one of the good guys, you know, mm. that, that, that can be a kind of an easy default, but 
the fact that you can say don't take anything away from me is a sign that you have something that somebody else doesn't and that hurts and that's hard and that is really challenging but that's kind of I don't want to say that's the point but that's the situation is that if you have something to give as sometimes it might be hard to give that that still might be the right thing to do because you are in a position to do so and I I think that's hard to grapple with Mm. I think that's really hard to grapple with when like you're not in like a huge system of in like a huge position of power compared to like other people who can like say afford to give that away in a way that feels easier for them than it would for you. That doesn't mean you should wait around for somebody else to do it. Hmm. Um, it doesn't mean you should be the last one to jump. And like, I'm guilty of that too. Cause like, I mean, it's hard. Like you don't want to give up what you feel like is yours but it's not, that's not the point. It's about this bigger thing, you know? Um, and I think coming to terms with that for yourself will always be scary because you're not used to that. That's not how we were raised, you know? Like, we were raised as Americans to pick ourselves up by the bootstraps and, like, you know, the American dream is inherently selfish because it's about you gaining, not you giving, which is really funny because if if like any right wing person is going to listen to this, they're going to be like, you're a fucking commie. (laughs) But like, I learned this in Sunday school. This isn't new. This isn't like radical. This isn't like some crazy like utopian ideal it's we've been talking about this forever but you got to do it or else it doesn't matter you're just talking about it you're just blowing smoke you know mm-hmm. and that is that second part is really tough and like i screw it up i will probably screw it up today i'll probably screw it up tomorrow but i want to do better by it and i think the whole world And, like, the art world will be better. The music community will be better. Like, yeah. I I just think that's the foundation that should be talked about, you know? Because I I want that. I want that empathy. I want to know that if I find myself in a position of struggle that I can ask for help when I need to. Or, like, I can rely on my community and I can rely on the community uh, in a way that I don't think a lot of people can right now, or at least not as many people as I think should be able to. In 2020, definitely presented a lot of that. Mm. And it's definitely presented that challenge, like globally, politically, but artistically. Because, like, seeing people just try to make stuff happen is, like, beautiful. Like, changing stuff to being online, 
new initiatives of just getting new music made by people who have never been made uh, who's never been given a chance to make it before like and then you know being in the digital age allows us to kind of just embrace that like i listened to a rapper today from nigeria Mm. like when the hell could you have done that before like the 21st (laughs) century you know like like we have this kind of space and we can do these kinds of things and sometimes it's hard and sometimes it's challenging but you can do them Mm. i think when you do do them you're better off but i think the world's better off too that's uh that's so true man i think um especially like i mean in the new music community in general you kind of i don't think the community operates without empathy yeah um i also like that you brought up the whole idea of of like jamming to a nigerian rapper like the, the fact that we have access to that like we can we can hear music or experience cultures or whatever from the luxury of our of our homes you know, like, we, like in some capacity, we get to, you know, have that opportunity. I don't think there's any other time when that, that could have happened in, in you know, and, uh, and there's, there's a certain, there's some sort of level of value and, uh, going to back to the idea of empathy and, and self-preservation where you hear, you hear what these people are doing on the other side of the world and it could be entirely related to what you're doing or not related at all, but it could still, you know, have some sort of uh, like speak to you in some capacity. Mm-hmm. And that right there could be the line that could be your lifeline for self-preservation. Yeah. Is experiencing that from another person. Yeah. And in a way that might also, that might be empathetic. I don't know. I might just be blowing smoke right now. I have no <laughs> idea, but. <laughs> it's weird. Cause I don't know. The weirdest part to me will always be enacting on that belief because I can talk about this all day mm-hmm. and I can like say whatever, but if I don't actually do anything, I don't think I'm living up to the standard that I'm setting, you know, and I'm probably not right now, but like you said, like I'm probably just blowing smoke, but I'm, I want to try, mm-hmm. you know, and I, I think that kind of accountability is important too. Like uh, we were talking about being critical with art earlier, like mm-hmm. being critical with like yourself, like, or being critical with your friends about like what people are doing. Like are people uh, even unintentionally being exclusionary, like say something are you doing something that's intentionally unintentionally exclusionary? Stop and think about it. Like that action is what matters. Yeah. I feel Mm. like I've cycled. I've like said the same thing a bunch now. (laughs) (laughs) Well, yeah, we were kind of circling through this conversation and stuff. Um, If you need to cut some of that, go ahead. (laughs) No, no, no. I think, I think it's all interesting. Um, I, I I have this total random. It's, I guess it's random. I don't know. It's not random, but uh with the idea of listening to like the Nigerian rapper and stuff like that. Um, how has your, your focus with listening to music gone through 2020? Cause earlier you were talking about uh, you've been listening to uh, like when you were going, like checking out your, the 200 pieces you had to learn for your yeah. needle drop test. And you were listening to a lot of music that wasn't that. Mm-hmm. 
Um, how has your focus been with listening to music? That in particular kind of screwed it up a little bit because I had this thing that I had to do, you know, which was pass this exam, mm-hmm. which that's like a big deal. Like I have to do that to carry on with my degree. So it's, it's kind of like a mission critical thing that I have to do, which I didn't really start studying for it until like July, maybe June seriously started studying in July. I think I kind of started trying in June. Uh, So before that, I was just constantly listening to stuff. Like when we went fully remote at UNT, like I would wake up every day and just throw on a new record on Bandcamp, just like discover something I've never listened to or like a new composer or something. I got really into a lot of record labels that like I had known about, but I hadn't been able to really deep dive or like composers that I've always liked, but never really did a deep dive of like, you know, even normie Western classical music. I listened to like, uh, most of Sibelius's catalog. Oof. Um, I listened to every George Crumb piece that I could find, which actually I think, I think was almost everything. Um, just to like listen to music that, you know, I, at home a lot more (laughs) um i guess i could so i just did i don't know that means i listened very critically but i i listened to a lot of stuff Mm. um so then when i actually started studying for my exam because that is such a mission critical thing it kind of made me feel guilty when i wouldn't do it because i knew i should be doing something else like I would listen to this, like a new record from another timbre and I like, I would be totally engrossed with it and totally in love with it. And then I would realize, Oh shit, I have this huge thing I should be doing right now. And so that made it, that made it pretty hard. Um, We had a little group chat of the three of us that took the exam and I kind of had a little bit of a mental breakdown and I was like, man, I'm just tired of feeling guilty about like listening to the stuff I want to. Mm -hmm. Um, In retrospect, it probably wasn't that bad. Um, I think I was feeling a lot of pressure from a lot of other things at the time that kind of like stymied some of it. But now that that's passed and over, like I feel like I'm back to just like exploring again, um, especially now that the semester's done, like even in the last week. Um, like people are starting to do their uh, end of the year like best records of the year kind of lists and stuff like Bandcamp just did theirs for contemporary classical music and like that kind of thing. So it's, it's nice to kind of see that year in curation that other people have done. And I'm really excited to do that the next couple of weeks. Um, as far as my attention span goes, I don't know. I like, can't do, I can't, sometimes I can. And sometimes I can't do anything else when I listen to music. Mm. It just depends. Like I cannot I do not know how people read books while listening to music. Like if I have to, if I have to read like an essay or an article or a paper or something, I can't listen to anything. Mm. Um, But if I'm like engraving or like just messing around on my computer or something or like that kind of thing, I always have something on. Dude. It's so funny to hear you say that because I'm literally the same way. Yeah. especially with engraving like engraving is just such a uh, uh um you know tedious task in many ways like 
where yeah. I, I do i actually like engraving but at the same time it is like it's a very specific okay you got to move this over just a little bit you know i like it because i can do other stuff exactly <laughs> yeah, like i i hate engraving i hate working in sibelius i hate working in uh, adobe illustrator like mm-hmm. i hate it but i can throw on some tunes and like listen to music while i do it and like i like that part uh i like that part quite a bit but i can't <laughs> read a book and listen to music at all like i can't listen to people talk like if I want to read a book and like Heyman's watching TV in the living room, I have to like shut the door and like, I'll put on my noise canceling headphones. Like I just can't do it. Like, um, this is so funny, man. Everything you're saying totally resonates with me. Uh-huh. <laughs> like, I'm the same. I'm literally the same way. I, I, if there's like a phone call or if I have a phone call, I have to leave the room or if someone else is on the phone while I'm in the room with them, I still have to leave the room. Cause it's well, not, not always. I don't know. That sounds, yeah. that sounds fucking ridiculous. Um, well, with phone calls, I feel weird with people listening to me, so I go for walks when I talk. Oh, about yeah. Them. Yeah. Yeah. I'm totally with you on that, man. Yeah. I, I honestly prefer that. Like, it's kind of weird sitting here having this long of a conversation while I'm just, like, sat here. Because <laughs> usually when I'm having really long conversations, I'm out for a walk. Uh, <laughs> the benefit of living in Texas is, like, you can do that almost all the time, so... It's funny you say that because, like, uh, do you remember on my birthday this past year we had a phone conversation? Yeah, I remember uh, that. and I it, was out for a walk when we did that. Yeah, it's funny because, like, I was in my car. Um, I was in Ann Arbor because uh, my girlfriend Ava was auditioning at University of Michigan that day, that exact moment, and it was cold, so I wasn't going to go for a walk. Yeah. And I remember sitting in my car and being like, I, I, I hate sitting here. Like I need to be, I need to be out moving around, but at the same time being in that confined space of the vehicle, like, you know, no one else yeah. is there with me to, to, to be a part of the conversation except you. Yeah. I totally feel that. <laughs> yeah. It's so funny. I, <clears throat> I do the same thing with uh phone conversations is I go on long walks. I'll walk through the neighborhood, um, you know, like, two hours two hours of just marching around and then i come home and i'm like why am i so fucking tired yeah which is nice you get your steps in you know totally on the phone for like two or three hours with somebody i'll have walked several miles at that point and so my legs feel like jello but you know whatever (laughs) yeah the the other night i had a phone conversation with my buddy for like over four hours there was like there was a very short 15 minute break in between it but um we were on the phone really late until like i don't know two something three in the morning mm-hmm. you know and uh i it was funny because i got to the point where i had to i had to sit down because i was so tired like physically tired yeah and also it was like two in the morning so i was literally tired like sleepy tired. yeah um but do do what are your when you have phone conversations are they typically long form like that Typically, for the most part, um, I'll like, like I'll talk to my parents for like sometimes only for like ten or fifteen minutes, sometimes two hours. Like it mm-hmm. just depends. Um, like you and I talked for hours um, that one time, and right now, um, my buddy Zach and I, whenever we have phone calls, it's it's generally at least one to two hours. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I guess usually. Um, a lot of times, too, if I'm having a phone call with somebody, it's because I haven't talked to them in a long time. Yeah. Or, like, there's something to talk about, like, which is, I guess, what's nice about, like, doing this is, like, you and I are friends.
friends, but we haven't like really talked that much because you don't talk on Facebook that much. Yeah. Um. So we're just like solving all the world's problems right now. Um, <laughs> which you know that happens in person too. Like if you see somebody that you used to talk to all the time and you haven't talked in them forever, you end up just talking for a really long time. Uh. I don't know. I can think of a million people that I haven't really talked to in a long time that I would just talk to you forever. When Anton and I talked the other day, I think we were on the phone for like three hours too. Mm. Um, when you just get into it, you just get into it, you know? Yeah, totally. And I can ramble. Like I, I can ramble. So I, I'd be curious to see what the difference between how much you've talked in this and how mm. much I've talked in <laughs> is. Cause I, it's not that I like listening to myself talk. Mm-hmm. I like talking because it, like, I feel like I'm figure I'm working stuff out. Like, which, you know, like I was saying, kind of makes me nervous doing a public conversation. Cause like there's stuff that I've probably said today that I've never said out loud. Mm-hmm. Cause I'm just like, you think about stuff, but then when you actually like talk about things, you're like articulating it and that kind of thing. So this is, I think there's a little bit of that too. Um, I'm not really th- sure, but it definitely feels like that's probably true. <laughs> yeah, totally, man. I, I, I'm the same way where I, I often go through things out loud. Like I, my thought process is like, I'll hear someone say something. I do this a lot with my girlfriend. I, I hear someone say something and then um, I'll, I'll like explain. I, I, I can't give an example. This is going to sound so vague, but um. I'll explain whatever it was that they're talking about out loud, which comes off as if I'm trying to explain to them, like they don't know what it is, but it's me actually like realizing like, Oh yeah, because of this whole process that takes place, that's why that makes sense. You know? And, uh, um, it's, (laughs) and then after the fact, like someone will be like, yeah, no, I know about that thing. And I'm like, no, no, no. I'm not trying to say you don't know. It's just how I, it's how I process things. Yeah. Yeah. I do that too. The act of conversation is weird. Like how language works in your brain. Like I'm not thinking about the phonemes of what I'm saying. It's just like, I'm just like saying stuff and it doesn't feel like I'm really even thinking that much before I talk, Mm -hmm. which even when I do like think before I respond to something doesn't feel the same as when I'm like thinking alone to myself. Like, it feels like it's blank, just like searching through a Rolodex for the right mm. thing rather than clearly articulating things in my head that much, which I think is really bizarre and can kind of make you feel like you, maybe you're not totally in control of your mouth. Because, <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, Lord knows that I can be pretty loud when I talk. So, like, and I just don't even think about it. Like, whereas... I could probably control that if I was a little more careful, but when you're just talking, like you don't think about that kind of thing, you know? Right. Right. Yeah. What do you think about um, like the whole idea of being genuine and honest? Right. So if, do you think that saying the first thing that comes to mind without really thinking about it is the definition of genuine and honesty or taking time to critically think about it and then craft a response or, or is it somewhere in the middle sort of thing? Oh, I think it's somewhere in the middle for sure. Um, we were talking about doubling down earlier. I think mm. that's kind of a thing that happens 
sometimes it happens to me sometimes where i'll say something without really thinking about it and somebody's like what do you mean and then you kind of kind of thoughtlessly double down on it where if it's if you maybe took a second you might not find that you fully agree with what you even just said mm. which sometimes is really funny like came and i were going i don't even remember what we were talking about one time i re- but i remember it happening she said something and then she just kind of kept going and then she's like by the time she finished saying what she was saying she was like disagreeing what she had initially said and she was like all right i figured that out never mind (laughs) (laughs) i'm like i I think that's fun i think that's fine like you don't have to know everything and as far as being genuine and honest go i don't i don't really know like sometimes it can really like take you by surprise like if somebody calls you out on a knee-jerk reaction that you didn't think about and they're like what do you mean like well i don't know i just kind of said that Mm. you know like for a lot of different reasons like even if it's not even being genuine if you were like just joking or like making a comment about something like i'm not gonna say anybody's name but i was at this party one time and a person made a joke And then they said, I'm just kidding. I'm just an asshole. And this other person who wasn't even like in on any of this, was just like, why do you think that's okay? Mm -hmm. Like to, to say that you're just an asshole. And they were like, I don't know. I was just saying something like I didn't actually like, you know what I mean? Which was really weird and funny at the time because it was like everything was really lighthearted and really casual and that kind of just like super serious tone just totally changed it mm-hmm. but when you're having just like a ca- casual conversation about whatever i think the genuine honesty might come from just like gabbing talking back and forth like whatever mm-hmm. and sometimes you just say stuff just to say it just to have a conversation as like a semantic filler or something rather than something that you genuinely believe. But then when somebody calls you out on that, you suddenly realize how dangerous language is and how dangerous it is when you're not really thinking and you're just talking. So I don't know. Uh, There's plenty of times where your knee-jerk reaction is really what you believe, and it's, like, really genuine and honest. Mm -hmm. But there's plenty of times, too, where if you actually sit down and talk about it, you kind of figure out what you mean, especially if it's something you never really thought about. Like, if somebody asks you a question, you're like, I don't know, I've never really thought about it. Like, that's that's probably just as good. Mm-hmm. You know? I don't know, Adam, I've never really thought about it. <laughs> well, that's sort of one of the funny things for me doing this podcast. Whenever I go back and listen to these episodes and I hear what I say or how I say it or, like, the, the, the sort of go-to phrases that I have, because we all have them, you know? And yeah. I'm like, I'm like, holy shit, I say that a lot. <laughs> like, yeah, I'm trying not to curse as much as I usually do right now. <laughs> right, right. Oh, uh, dude, you can curse. I, I, it's totally fine. No, that's okay. But um, like, my grandma might listen to this. Um, okay. Well, I, I apologize then to your grandmother <laughs> yeah. for, for my cursing. <laughs> Sorry, everybody. I don't mean to offend anyone. It's just, uh, it, it's what happens, I guess. <laughs> You're from New Jersey. It's okay. Yeah. Yeah, I don't, I don't know, man. Like... I guess it kind of goes back to what we were talking about earlier. Like your opinions can change. That's okay. Mm -hmm. Like you can learn and that's okay. Um, I don't know where those lines are. Like, cause there's probably a line where 
you kind of can't roll back what you said. Mm. Um, I don't know where that is. I don't know what that means necessarily. I think that's one of the uh, social challenges of the 21st century. Like, what do you do with asshole assholes after the fact? Mm-hmm. Um, I don't have a really good answer for that, but I think it's really interesting to think about. We don't have to get into that because I feel like that could go into a ton of different places. All different directions with that, yeah. <laughs> but, I mean, yeah, like I said, man, like, you, you can change your mind. You can learn. You can go you can roll back and like think about stuff and like come to terms and like hit up like if you think about if you like have a conversation with somebody that you like really disagree on something and then you stew on it for a week and you come to realize that you were wrong Mm -hmm. reach out to that person and have that conversation again like just be like hey man i was thinking about it i think you're right like and then like do it again like nobody's gonna like anybody you do that to you if they're like i told you so well they're an asshole yeah yeah you know maybe they didn't have good graces in mind either and if somebody ever does that to you like don't do that either like embrace that kind of dialogue you know Mm -hmm. like that discourse that kind of transformation of concept like it's good it's good to learn things (laughs) (laughs) it's good to discover something you didn't know like or if you thought one thing that you were just like wrong you know Mm -hmm. um yeah i guess Uh, that all kind of rolls back to the huge thing i was talking about earlier with empathy like it's all the same thing man like learn try do better help people do better and if you're wrong, learn to not be wrong or be wrong less. And that's not necessarily being like a know-it-all smart aleck that has all the right answers. It's just trying to do better. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Being okay with being wrong. Yeah. Yeah. Because maybe um, you'll put up this podcast and I'll get an email from somebody that's like, hey, you made a huge ass of yourself and I'll be really embarrassed. Mm. And it'll be really hard, but if that kind of helps me be better, that's cool. Like, it'll be one of those things that keeps me up at night because I'll be like, oh man, I made a huge ass of myself on Adam's podcast. In 20 years, I'll be thinking about it. Right. It's like, you know, it'll be one of those things that like, (laughs) you know, you think about something embarrassing you did in high school that nobody remembers. Like it might, that might come out, turn out to be one of those things. And like, that sucks. Yeah. If you become a better person at the end of it, it's probably okay in the long run. (laughs) Um, Yeah. (laughs) That's, oh yeah. I I think about that myself, man. I mean, like it hasn't happened yet. It will happen sooner or later. Someone's going to contact me and I'm going to say something stupid or wrong, or at least offend someone, you know? Um, And it's, it's going to be like, Hey man, what the hell? Why did you say that? <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. And, and that's the thing. It's like doing this sort of platform, having this sort of platform and stuff. Um, the vulnerability is, is very um, prominent. Totally. It makes it very easy to, you know, to be a target for anything, even, even if your intentions aren't, you know, anything malicious or, um, you're just trying like, like how you and I were saying earlier, like when we, when we talk, we talk out loud with what we're thinking. So mm-hmm. it's like, we're trying to figure it out. 
someone could hear us trying to figure that thing out out loud and interpret that as like, oh, this guy's clearly an asshole or something or like, you know. Yeah. Um, yeah. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know what how how I'll handle it when when I do get that email from someone calling me out about whatever or what you know. But uh, yeah, it's weird. Like putting yourself out there is and trying to be very public is weird. It feels a little dangerous. It feels unnatural. Like, I, I'm i not, like, sure exactly how I feel about this yet. But I would think so. Take, take all this kind of with a grain of salt. But I, I try to be very easy to find, mm-hmm. like, as an artist. I'm blessed that my parents gave me the name that I have spelled the way it is. Like, because I got CoreyReader.com, I got CoreyReader YouTube channel, CoreyReader Bandcamp, CoreyReader SoundCloud. Like, I'm not fighting for anybody else by name and nomenclature. So when you Google my name, there's like me and like some film producer in LA or something that hasn't really done that much stuff. But like most of the time, I think I pop up. I, I, I do check occasionally just cause like, you know, you got to keep up on like what you're putting out there. Like that you're, if you want to be easy to find, you got to make sure that you're easy to find. So like, yeah, I Google myself sometimes to make sure I'm easy to find. Um, but that's really weird. Cause a lot of like your personal life and stuff, you don't really want out there. Mm-hmm. So then when you put out your art, your work, your like public persona, whatever that is, like it's still you, you know, like you're still doing that. You're still like sticking your neck out there at least a little bit. So it's weird because I mean, unless you just want a ton of attention, which like I'm not that kind of person, I do not want a ton of attention thrown at me. Like, I mean, I'm still self-conscious about my art, you know, like I get nervous when I post new pieces. I get really anxious when like I post a new work or something and I like, I want to know what people think about it. And like, part of that is like, maybe a little love for the abuse, (laughs) uh, being a little addicted to the pain of it. But like, at the same time, it's like, it's you, you're putting out there a little bit, like at least a little bit. So like, and it's bizarre. And, like, I don't think there's really any way to teach that. It's just something you kind of got to do, and you kind of, you just kind of get used to it. Like, I don't get nervous when I perform ever. Like, I don't remember the last time I've gotten like nervous on stage, ner- nervous playing, nervous having my music played somewhere. But I get real nervous when I conduct, I get real nervous when I post a piece on the internet and I don't know why I don't know what's really that different about it I don't know what freaks me out about one and not the other but like I don't get stage fright unless I'm waving my hands in front of an ensemble and then I do Mm. like I don't get super self-conscious about my music unless I'm posting it online and then I get real nervous about it like 
and I, I don't know, I don't know what it is about those things. And I don't really know if there's a way to learn or unlearn that, or if that's just kind of like part of my, how my brain works or something. And maybe one day it'll stop bothering me just from exposure, which is probably true because I'm way less nervous about it than I used to be. Mm. But I don't think it's really natural <laughs> for people to do that, or at least it's not natural for everybody. I think I have like some charisma. So I think I have like a little bit more of that than like some people that don't want anything to do with that. Mm-hmm. But, but that's just kind of me. I don't know. I do have pretty thick skin for criticism too. So it's not like I really have anything to be worried about. Like if somebody's like, you're a jackass, if it's about my art or whatever, if somebody's like, this dude sucks, thumbs down, unsubscribe. That's that's not the most engaging comment ever. So like I, that doesn't bother me at all. But that's the kind of thing that I get nervous about for some reason. Like I get nervous about it, but then it doesn't actually do anything when it happens. Um, so there's like some cognitive dissonance there that I need to work out. But mm. uh, bye. It's interesting to think about these sort of things. The why. Like the why and the how are always interesting questions. Um, what do you do? Like you personally, what do you do in those sort of instances where you're feeling like uh, reluctant to put yourself out there? Uh, I don't know what you call that, accruing risk in a way, you know? Depends on the situation, I guess. Um, the last time I actually waved my arms in front of an ensemble was in February. I conducted uh, my flute concerto and a symphonic song. And I was hella nervous before I got out there to conduct it. But it was like, I either do this or it doesn't happen at all. So get over it and go do it. Mm. Uh, that's what I had to do in that situation. I posted that three hour long piece, which I was like really nervous about doing that. For some reason, it really freaked me out. I'm really proud of that piece and I really love it. And I, I, I'm really happy with how it ended up. But for some reason, I was really nervous to put it out there. Mm-hmm. And at a certain point, it's like, well, it's just sitting there. Like, it's not it's not doing anything. Like, uh, the music doesn't really exist unless it can be heard, I guess, or, like, performed or experienced or something. And, like, you, you kind of just got to do it. And if I want people to listen to my music and experience my art, you got to put it out there. You got to put yourself out there a little bit. I don't know. There's, there is, like, a conflict there about like not wanting to be like, I don't want to have a ton of attention on me, Mm -hmm. but I also want to make music. And I also want to be like an artist, which like you kind of have to accept that you're going to be looked at and you're going to have that attention on you and you're going to be out there like that. Um, As much as you might not, want it or it feels uncomfortable that's kind of part of the game unless you have an anonymous career which people do uh that's like a thing i can't think of an example in the contemporary classical world but like you know a lot of vaporwave artists are essentially anonymous a lot of like black metal artists are essentially anonymous like maybe that's just how that world works compared to what the contemporary classical world looks like Mm. Um, i don't know I think Bill Smith might be an anonymous person, if you know who this is. Bill Smith, um, no, I don't. Uh, it's 
the rabbit hole. Shout out to Chris Poovey, who I work with at UNT, who goes down that rabbit hole with me on occasion, and it's pretty fun. <laughs> but like, and I might be wrong, Bill Smith, if you are a real person and you're listening to this, uh, let's talk. What do you need? Let's chat. <laughs> I want to get to know you. Um, but other than that, I can't think of a single example of like, anonymizing yourself in the contemporary world unless you're just like doing news score stuff and on reddit which is fine um that's not what i'm trying to do yeah i can't think of any contemporary composers i mean i, I only know of that one artist is uh, i think his name's banksy right in england yeah yeah you know that's like the first person that comes to mind well in um, most of the time graffiti art in itself is most relatively anonymous mm-hmm. um unless somebody is like a popular signature like you really know somebody in that community because there is a community of graffiti artists like mm-hmm. i i knew a couple people that did it ex- like a lot in nebraska and they would like they could like see train cars and every once in a while they'd be like oh that's this person mm-hmm. like there's like a world for that but for most of the world that's anonymous right Um, tattoos in a lot of way are that because they don't have unless you really know like an artist's work or like something they generally don't have like a signature or something on them Mm -hmm. but it's still a dynamic art form uh but it's probably a lot more anonymous than like what we're doing Mm yeah that's that's a good point uh graffiti art form the art form in its in itself is like based off of anonymity and you know or at least started that way or it still is i guess but but all, it kind of is out of necessity right exactly you're breaking the law, you're breaking the law yeah <laughs> <laughs> i mean this this conversation though of vulnerability and putting yourself out there is something that i've it's been so present for me lately with this podcast because um i've never had a podcast before and yeah. like starting the, been on a podcast before so right yeah so it's like um when this is i my second public interview ever so really yeah well dude it's a long one <laughs> or no third i guess this is my third one okay so, but this is the first this is the second one of me just talking mm-hmm. which is what like i've said before freaks me out about it <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's weird. I mean, cause you can't craft things as much as you can, like say in a Facebook post or whatever, you know, yeah. and, uh, the way that it's not as, um, Oh, what's the word manufactured? I don't know. Um, yeah. so there's the vulnerability, right? Like what we're talking about. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, but it's hard. It's hard. Like, especially jumping into something you're unfamiliar with. I had a conversation with Alan Teeson about this. What was it like episode seven, I think. And uh, um, talking about in order to grow or progress, you have to, you have to live in discomfort mm-hmm. because to progress means to do something you haven't done yet or something that is unfamiliar. And that right there is the definition of the uncomfortable, of discomfort. Yeah, and yeah. that's what that's exactly what we were talking about earlier too. Mm-hmm. Like you're gonna have to do some uncomfortable stuff to learn, you know, and to grow and try. Mm-hmm. They can teach you what it's gonna. They can tell you what it's gonna feel like, mm. but you can't be taught how it feels, you know. 
I can tell everybody that it's going to be super uncomfortable, but you won't know until you're there. I, I don't know where I read this, but there's something about like pain is challenging because language is so isolating. Mm. Like you cannot tell somebody how something feels and actually have them feel it. Mm. It's not really. So like whenever people, I have a ton of tattoos for those who don't know me, um, like all over under my shirts and stuff. And like people ask me, they're like, what's does that hurt? Like that huge piece on your elbow or like across my chest or my back. They're like, what's it feel like? No matter what I say is pretty much meaningless unless you felt it or unless you then feel it, you know? Mm-hmm. And whenever you put yourself out there, you won't know until you do it. Like you're not, you won't know what stage fright feels like until you have it. And you won't really be able to explain it but you know it. Uh, so like the anxiety of putting yourself out there as an artist or like the anxiety of growing or like the challenge of growing as a person. It's like, that's kind of why it's so weird and uncomfortable too, is because like people can tell you what it's going to be, but you're never going to know until you do it. And that's really weird and really freaky. <laughs> Cause you know, like you can read the synopsis of a movie and you kind of can, you like, you can, you can gain the entire experience of a bad movie if the synopsis is thoroughly written, but you can't write a synopsis of stage fright of artistic growth. Like you just kind of got to do it mm-hmm. or maybe, maybe that's not even the right, right word, but it is something to be experienced it's kind of interesting about music too, because we always talk about like scores as like a document of what music is, but is that the music or is it the performance or is it the wiggly air going around? Is it the, the ritual of a concert, that kind of stuff. I think it's all kind of similar. Yeah, dude, that's a great question. I mean, it makes me, uh, my buddy Devin, who was on here previously, he he's doing these new things, uh, audio scores, where he uh, records himself making sounds or doing something with a specific instrument and then sends it to the performer and then has them interpret it, you know, in some capacity, um, but also gives them some instructions like take this noise, but just do it better. <laughs> you know, like yeah. whatever, however you would do this better, what would you do? And do that for three minutes, you know, like... <laughs> Oh, okay. So it's like orally transmitting scores. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I can dig that. I mean, that's like it's how music is done all the time, oh, all totally. over the world forever. You know, it's just weird that we don't do that in like normie classical music kind of stuff. Not even normie, contemporary, like whatever. Like so few people do just completely orally transmitted scores or like mm. what you were just describing. Uh, but it's completely normal in like folk music, quote unquote mm. folk music, or like any orally transmitted artistic experience. Like we were talking about pup bands earlier. Like they don't give a shit how you write that down. Like, <laughs> and like I, I didn't either. And like, <laughs> yeah. that's what I like about like being an improviser too is like you don't need any of that. Not really. Mm. Um, not to make like good art or experience good art or anything like that. 
it sort of makes me think about uh you ever see the show diners drive-ins and dives with guy fieri yeah um i used to watch, i used to love that show because I, I i love going out to eat so like seeing how restaurants would make their food was like such a behind the curtains like oh this is awesome uh peeking behind the curtain thing but the, it's interesting to watch because then you have certain chefs who are like trained in french cuisine and then they take that technique and then apply it to something like i don't know um uh lasagna or something or like but then you have other people who uh don't measure what they're doing and they're just like yeah this my mom just said grab a handful of flour and throw it in there you know like yeah yeah (laughs) and it's like um the approach is all different you know how they go about getting the final product is so different that um uh and then all uh, you know, and then the final product itself is also going to be different. Um, and it's interesting to kind of look at that parallel in in things like music too, like yeah. the example of of writing down music versus orally transmitting it. Like before we were on the podcast, I was actually sitting with my guitar and trying to learn a song like by ear, you know. Yeah. Uh, and there's something about that experience that makes it like you, there's like a phys- there's like an actual physical connection to what you're doing, you know. Yeah. I think for me as a composer, what I like about notated music is I, I can spend a lot more time. Like I need to see things written out a lot, you know? Mm-hmm. And so like stepping back and, and seeing it and then sitting on it and thinking about it for a while. And, and depending on how dense the music is, of course, um, that's a freedom that I, I have trouble with outside of notation. Does that make sense? I don't know if I said that well. Okay, okay. Yeah. um. I I think a lot of that comes down to what are you trying to do as a composer? Which it sounds like what you're saying is you're trying to explicitly and accurately recreate something every time, right? mm Mm-hmm. That's a very different question, or that's a very different approach than creating a situation in which music can happen Mm -hmm. because what you're saying is do this versus do these maybe or like do what could happen you know and i think that kind of approach makes a difference makes it a little different um you know, and like notation is inherently flawed. Like it, like it is very good at telling us some things. It's very bad at telling us other things, which is why people try different notations all the time. Mm-hmm. But I guess it kind of just depends on what you're trying to get at. Like, are you trying to recreate a specific thing in a specific way, the same way all the time, or not? Is mm-hmm. it the point? Is it not? you're kind of asking those questions um for a lot of my pieces like i it's mostly text with like like these grid pieces i've mentioned throughout this like it's text and then like just a page of dots basically on a staff but they they can be read in any octave like whatever and the text is like the instruction of how you like go through the lattice work of the notation so it's basically a harmonic framework with a initiation of what you do. 
and I never am very specific with them and I'm intentionally not very specific with them because that's not the point. Mm-hmm. Whereas if I wanted this thing to happen at this time, I couldn't write my music like that. You know what I mean? Um, which like, obviously I do. I, I write that kind of music too. We already talked about some of those kinds of pieces that are like explicitly notated, but that's a different situation and you're setting up a different situation and you're working under different parameters there. Mm. Um, Which I guess is the difference between like implicit and explicitly stating what is happening. Like what is the situation? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, so the, the goal or whatever it is you're trying to accomplish is dependent on the process think so yeah and i think that can be a goal in like a broad sort of way like with like my grid pieces i perform a lot of them like i've performed a lot of them and i do perform a lot of them and one of my favorite experiences with it was just like a couple weeks ago i did a recording session with a flutist friend of mine and a completely different thing and i had two pages of a grid piece um it wasn't even meant to be for flute and piano, but we were like, Hey, you just want to like play this. And, and like, I, it's Elena Clarice. We work together all the time. Mm. So she knows like what kind of music I'm into. She's into it too. We play together all the time. So it was just like, here's a couple pages of this grid. And we just sat there and played for 20 minutes. Didn't talk about it beforehand. Didn't practice obviously. And it's not like we're sight reading. Cause it's, it's not the same thing, you know? Mm. Um, but that's what I like about those pieces is you can just, they're just, you can just do it. it. It doesn't take a lot of like practice in the traditional sort of the way the virtuosity is in your engagement with mm-hmm. it, um, which is a completely different situation than like the traditional notation kind of dots on the page sort of way. That's, that's completely different, you know? On the one hand, you can like tell people what to do, or you can like lure them into engaging with what is going on or what mm-hmm. can happen. And you know, there there is like critical theory about that too. There's a book called Word Events by I think John Leely and James Sanders, maybe. I have it over there, but I don't want to get up and grab it. That like is all about like it, it's like it's like towards a theory of text notation, like scores that are just text. Right. And like, you can still pick that apart. Like think about the language that you use. Like it matters. Like if I say, do this thing, that's very different than saying, perhaps this will happen. Mm -hmm. You know, that kind of, that is, uh, you know, to kind of use the traditional model that is theoretically a different way of, communicating um, you can be prescriptive or descriptive like i think the an example that they use in that book is steve reich's pendulum music is like very scientifically prescriptive of something whereas if steve reich had said just kind of explained the technique rather than the process would be very different because mm-hmm. then you could do stuff like playing with the rhythm more like in like directly rather than setting up something to just happen, which is not the goal of his piece, you know, or uh, you can break down language of like what is said and what is not said, like 
Christian Wolf Stones is kind of a classic. It's a text piece of just like playing, like using rocks and like hitting them against each other and making sounds. But the the final statement of the paragraph that says what you do is don't break anything, which to me is a qualifier of, it can be a qualifier of dynamics. It implies to me something quiet, but it also implies to me a degree of control and a degree of reservation where if it's, if he had just said bang some rocks together, it's a really different kind of framing of that situation. Mm. Um, What was your question? (laughs) It was, uh, sorry, I just rambled for like five minutes. (laughs) (laughs) No, I, I, I totally was with you on that too. Um, I think the last thing I said was the the um, the intention of what the final result of the music is is dependent on the process. Trying, yeah, okay. And then yeah. and then and then um, you gave a couple of examples there. I, it's so interesting to, to to reflect on these things and think about them. Um, even like what you mentioned, how like you said, like hitting, like bang on these two rocks is totally different than saying like perhaps by hitting these rocks it might continue to happen you know whatever like yeah in you five seconds direction with that yeah. yeah yeah so uh it's yeah such an interesting idea um and also for the performers too how they how they uh relate to that yeah i think a lot of what we do as like a traditional composer falls somewhere into the world of like an employee employer kind of relationship like Mm -hmm. there's a power dynamic there you know there's like a i'm telling you what to do sort of thing and even in like my music that like i don't explicitly state things i've still made a thing that is being looked at and being played in a certain way Mm -hmm. and there's a ton of questions about like what is the role of a composer when you didn't actually write anything quote i'm saying this in quotations by the way like you didn't write anything so are you really a composer mm-hmm. sometimes that conversation is a lot less genuous or like a lot less um generous than i think it could be but i think that's kind of a bad habit of what composition means in the 21st century sometimes Mm. like i like being a performer too as well as a composer i like writing and playing music and like writing music that i can play because it kind of makes me feel like that power is a little bit different whereas i think like i'm not i'm not trash talking new complexity or anything like that but stuff like brian fernio is like there is a very intense power dynamic in one in like one direction there. Like the composer is doing a lot to manipulate the performer in that way. Mm-hmm. Um, which some people read as violent and some people read as liberating. Um, mm. But there is a exchange there that is very different than a text score like Christian Wolf stones or like, any of Anton Boyer's pieces or something like that, but it's a decision of how you engage with the musical practice 
like do you tell people what to do do you invite them to do something uh do you give them permission to do something or something else do you not which is like it's historically dynamic like baroque musicians would be pissed off if you told them what to do all the time like i think there's documented examples of people being pissed off at bach for like explicitly stating certain ornaments uh that might be incorrect but i I think i've read that somewhere but you know conservatory trained violinists who are trying to perfect their tchaikovsky concerto might get a little freaked out when you give them just like two sentences of musical instruction (laughs) Uh, and then it gets especially weird when you start talking about like paying people for that kind of thing because then it sets up your expectation within like a capital environment Mm -hmm. like who is to say that a text score is any less valuable than a bunch of dots on a page you know what i mean Mm -hmm. that it's not the right conversation to have um my piece is like my messier piece is three hours long but it's a very different three hours than like you know, I said Ferniho, but even like Feldman, like Feldman's six hour string quartet, everybody talks about it being really, well, people talk about a lot of Feldman's music as being very like peaceful and serene for it, which is true for everybody except the people playing it. Mm-hmm. Like it is very explicit and it's, I've heard that string quartet described as the, a straight jacket, like, because you're, it's so intensely specific. Mm-hmm. Um, which, you know, you could argue on the one hand is like kind of emblematic of this whole thing of classical music at large of like the composer as this like kind of craftsman that creates things for other people to do. But you can also kind of see that as really, like I said, violent and like aggressive against the individuals who are performing it. Mm-hmm. Um, could you I'm, I'm having trouble with the violent aspect of it can you explain violent that? insofar as restraint like um, violent as in I am controlling you I'm telling you how to behave how to physically act um, how to understand your personhood which violence is it's I, I don't say that as like inflammatory and I don't say it as like, what's the, what's the word? Um, I don't say it as like, God, what's the word where like you. Malicious? Doesn't matter. Okay. <laughs> okay. If you cut that, you can bring it back in now. I, I don't mean that as like over exaggerating as like being inflammatory or like trying to get a rise out of somebody. I mean that as like you are restraining the nature of somebody else's individuality, which I think is like an act of violence. It's not the same way as killing somebody. Mm -hmm. Those aren't the same thing, Mm -hmm. but it's still that power dynamic, um, which is something that we all navigate when you do an art form that you're telling somebody else what to do. You are enacting in that space in some way. And I think that can happen violently, which it doesn't always, 
and mm-hmm. like you know nobody plays feldman on accident but it's kind of like that's the way feldman chose to engage with his art Hmm. is in that kind of way and so he's making a conscious decision that this is how i handle we'll say handle this is how i deal with people now i'm not saying that i fully agree with that but when you look at his art in that way the conversation becomes very different especially when you look at like people, like how I said, people talk about his work as being like serene and like peaceful and like this beautiful stillness, blah, blah, blah. Well, that is one way of reading his work. Mm-hmm. What if you read it in this other way too? I think, oh, what was it? Elliot Carter hated like Steve Reich music and like minimal, <laughs> like first wave minimalism. He called it fascism hmm. because it was repeating like, the lie of functional harmony or something like over and over and over and over again and bashing you over the head. That is an interesting way of reading pulse based minimalism, like, Mm -hmm. which I don't think a lot of people think about it in that way. That's not how I read it, but like, it's really interesting to do that. Um, I guess this goes like right back to what we were talking about, like an hour and a half ago when we were talking about (laughs) politics and stuff like that is like, that's you're choosing how you engage and you can also, and you, I think you should learn how to read things in multiple ways. I have a book that I'm really excited to read. Um, it's called the intangibilities of form by John Roberts. Mm-hmm. Um, but the subtitle is skill and de-skilling after the ready-made, which is a really interesting question. Like what is skill in a ready-made sculpture? Um, that's kind of the fundamental question. I guess a lot of people have like, well, I could have made that, but if you really thought about it with music, like what is the skill there? You know, um, it's just an interesting way of thinking about it. And I think the more and more you engage with that, it kind of informs the way you make stuff and what you think about. Um, I mentioned in that long tirade earlier about how I think can charity can be emblematic of capitalism and like the great man theory, but that it can also be, you can also do it in framing. Um, One of my grid pieces, it's just a grid of pitches. Everybody's looking at the same thing. Everybody has the same sort of format and whatever, but it's called violin concerto. Mm. So what is the concerto part it's how you mentally frame your listening experience because just by calling it that you suddenly listen to the violin in a completely different way Mm -hmm. it has nothing to do with their skill their virtuosity or anything it has entirely to do with your mental framing of listening right um which i think is really interesting uh I think Feldman's piano concerto has two piano parts. Sometimes you can't tell them apart. (laughs) Like that's a really interesting kind of thing. Um, Sorry, I'm playing with my pen. People are going to hear that. Um, (laughs) It's a really interesting way of framing how you experience that. Right. It's not how we are generally taught to think about it. Or what is that? What is that? What is that? uh, Mark Applebaum piece. 
It's like a piece for an orchestra and a florist. Um, <laughs> I don't know it. <laughs> yeah, I, I can't remember what it's called, but it, it's like a, I think it's concerto for orchestra and florist. So there's like an orchestra and then somebody doing like floral, flowered, whatever. Um, which is kind of funny. Like, like there is like a gimmicky kind of funny bit to it, but it also is like if you really think about it like and really seriously engage with that like it it opens up as like a wonderful world of possibilities that like i would have never thought about Mm. or like yeah i know there's like tons of examples of that you know that's interesting i had never heard of (laughs) orchestra and florist (laughs) i think that's what it is um yeah how you engage with what you what you're experiencing both or as listener as performer and as composer Mm -hmm. that's uh that's an interesting and important thought i think especially with like you're saying like what we do you know writing music and and collaborating with performers Mm -hmm. what one thing that i i have a little bit trouble with with using the word violence for explaining composition is that uh there's a choice made like you said like you have a choice to how you engage Mm -hmm. and i think that goes with the performer as well so like performers who work with you have an idea of what to expect of what the music's going to be yeah i I imagine i know exactly what you're about to say and I, i also agree with that right so then uh if that's the case then i don't see how that's violence mm-hmm. right yeah that's what makes it interesting to think about is like <clears throat> that's that's the next couple layers of that line of thinking is like which has its branches it has its forks in the road like you can think about that as well these people are consenting to this like you nobody plays this music on accident you know but you can also say what does that tell us about labor and like that kind of employee employer kind of relationship like also who's complicit in what like who's making these decisions um what if the second violinist doesn't want to do it but they have to kind of thing you know what i mean those are all possible other avenues to take that conversation yeah but i think as artists those are the kind of things we should be thinking about like like yeah i agree if people are if people are doing it maybe we shouldn't necessarily call it violent but we can also talk about it as something else like we can talk about it as pure athletics Mm. which i think that's i i I can get down on that like watching somebody play like a stupidly hard zanakis piano solo is pretty cool like it's pretty impressive that is yeah 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 uh i don't think any of this is mutually exclusive though Mm -hmm. i think that's what makes art such a dynamic thing to think about is all of these things can exist at the same time and you can read them in those various ways Mm. that are all, I don't think any of them are necessarily less, uh, I don't know, stimulating, impactful or challenging. That's the the thing that's interesting with music. Like my buddy and I were having this conversation the other day is like, when you listen to a piece of music that makes you cry, yeah. Like, why are you crying? Why does it make you cry? 
And, and I think that sort of connects to what we're saying here about like how you engage with the music you're listening to, why you make the decisions you make to do this thing and how, you know, like how people are interpreting it or the way that they're feeling when they listen to it. Like, uh, like you're saying, asking these questions is to understand that relationship and stuff, because like you said, it's an abstract thing. Mm-hmm. Um, there's nothing, there's nothing concrete. Like you and I have had this conversation before about program music mm-hmm. <laughs> or programmatic elements in music. Like, you know, uh, the, like the literal interpretation saying like, Oh, how is this, the, how is this melody supposed to be a waterfall or something? Or like, yeah. you know, and that's not to say that it isn't, but at the same time, it's like, well, the, what, where, like, what am I supposed to get from it? If I, if I say it's not a waterfall, <laughs> Yeah, totally. Um, I'm less grumpy about that than I used to be. Me too. <laughs> I am as well. But I, I still, I like, I still wonder that all the time. Like, but I think that's kind of why I've gravitated towards like the other kind of conversations that we've been having now. It's because that is very real. That's concrete. That's something people like. That's a conversation about human experience in a way that programmatic music kind of isn't. And I still don't fully buy that. Although there are times that I I have like been convinced by it in the past, where Pro- I'm like programmatic oh, okay, music. I, I get what you're saying now. You're talking about program music. Yeah, like okay. when it's like this is about X Y Z. I get it more than I used to. Um, but now it's just kind of not something I'm really. It's not the conversation that I'm as interested in anymore. Um, because like I don't I don't I don't know I don't. I still think that if you write a piece that's about the tree in your grandma's backyard, (laughs) nobody knows that probably didn't do a great job at explaining that that's what it's about. But are you hanging on to that? Mm -hmm. Is that actually what it's about? Or is that just what you use to jump off of? Right. Which I think if it's like, this is what I used to jump off of. That's one thing, but also if I don't get it, who gives a shit? You know what I mean? Like, um, does it does it matter to you if I didn't get it? Because then it, that's another thing, too, which is what I was talking about. Like, what is skill? It's kind of like, what is good? <laughs> um, which the older I get, the less I'm sure of in general. Mm. Um, I'm not nihilistic. I don't think anything goes. But I'm also, like, not dogmatic. Mm-hmm. Um, and sometimes those are those two statements contradict each other in my head, and I don't have a good answer for why. <laughs> but then, like, I don't know. That's kind of like dealing in absolutes, and I'm just trying to figure it out, man. Like, yeah, yeah. I'm not. I'm 27 years old. I'm trying to figure it out too. Like, I'm just a kid, man. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> um, I don't know. I think at the end of the day. I'm more excited when people are stoked on stuff than anything else. If somebody's like, this is about the tree in my grandma's backyard and that's the hill I'm going to die on. And I can stand by why for a really long time. And this is my shit. And this is what I'm stoked on. I'll be a lot more convinced by that than somebody that says the same thing, but they're like wet bread about it. Mm. You know what I mean? Right. Right. Um, Which can go in the complete other way with like gnarly and accessible shit. If you're like, why'd you do this? And they're like, I don't know that's a lot less interesting than somebody that can like articulate why and why it matters. Um, yeah, I guess like I'm the, that's, 
it's hard to tell because you have to like talk to people and engage in that kind of like conversational space. But I've kind of always felt that like there's people that you and I are friends with Adam, whose names I will not say that I could give a shit about their music really, but I really like them and I really like how much they really like doing it. Mm. So then it's like when you're watching somebody that's just like doing their thing, like that's pretty beautiful. And you're like, yeah, that's awesome. Mm. Like, and I'm into that. I think that's cool. That's cool. I, I like that a lot. That's uh yeah, man. I have no good segue here, but I do have to say I think I'm I think I'm at my point where I needed to cut it. <laughs> I beat you. I think so, man. Dude, holy shit, we've been doing this for over three hours. Yeah, three and a half hours. Nobody's gonna listen to this whole fucking thing. Sorry, you can trim it. <laughs> uh, no, no, I, I I don't know how I'm gonna post this if I'm gonna do it all in one chunk or like in parts or whatever. But um, before I stop the recording here, is there anything you want to leave the people with? Maybe uh, a little word of wisdom or some uh, love or some events coming up? Social media tags? Social media. I don't know. I'm, I'm always doing stuff. If you're curious, you can follow me on various social medias and whatever. Um, mm. You can feel free to write me at any time if you would like. Um, I'm easy to get a hold of and I'm easy to find. So if you ever want to chat or yell at me please feel free to do so if i could leave on something it is kind of the thing i was preaching there in the middle for a long time like i i I will always encourage people to critically engage and to be empathetic and to try to learn from one another like be helpful participate in your community and try to uplift voices and people that need it and use your skills to do so but also have open ears and listen um i guess that's kind of the big thing maybe i'm a little bit burnt out too it's been three and a half hours (laughs) yeah be good to each other (laughs) and try to learn (laughs) 